0: Hey guys, Josh Williams here from the one man podcast with a bonus episode for you today with my good buddy, K Trevor Wilson. I uh, didn't get an opportunity to plug a few things uh, during the interview itself. So I just wanted to say, if you guys enjoy this episode, please come see him at absolute comedy. He is there for the next uh, three days, June 22nd to the 24th of 2018. So uh, be sure to go to absolutecomedy.ca and either buy tickets online or find out how to reserve. Uh, don't miss your opportunity to see the super, super funny guy. Also, K Trev has an album available on iTunes. Uh, I'm sure you can get it elsewhere as well. I'm just not 100% sure all platforms, but the album is called Sex Cop Fire Penis. That is where I'm going to be playing you a couple of little tracks uh, from that throughout the course of the episode. Well, just to pop Pepper in some of his, uh, you know, his jokes or whatever, a few of them he references uh, throughout the course of the episode. So just so you get to hear them along the way, uh, just if it sounds like rough edits in, I didn't uh, didn't leave gaps for uh, for the jokes. So uh, I hope you guys enjoy this interview with my good friend uh, K. Trevor Wilson, super funny comedian, and as always, these interviews are brought to you guys by my partners at Absolute Comedy. Enjoy the episode, guys, and we'll talk to you again soon. Yeah. It's Josh Williams here, and welcome to another bonus episode of the One Man Podcast, guys. Today, my guest, oh man, I can't say enough good things about this guy. Uh, he has performed, he won the homegrown competition at the Just For Last Festival. Uh, he's the star of Crave TV's Letter Kenny. Uh, he's performed on Jimmy Kimmel Live. He's got a great album out on iTunes called Sex Cop Fire Penis. Uh, and lots of other, I mean, he's open for Louis C.K., Sarah Silverman, Patton Oswalt. The list goes on, and he's here with me today. Thank you so much, K. Trevor Wilson, for, uh, for hey, being on the podcast. Thanks for having me, Josh. Yeah, we just left a... Uh, uh, an afternoon show at Adobe. Yeah. The Photoshop yeah. people. How'd you nice. th- what'd you think of that?
1: After they were nice. They were nice. Uh, you know, it, it afternoon shows are always weird. Cause you know, a, we're not in a club setting. So, and people, these people are at their office. So, yeah. you know, you, you never want to be the, only person laughing at a bit, or like you, you, putting myself on the other side, if I was in the audience, like there's nothing probably worse than being the only person to find a questionable joke funny and having everyone else in the office be like, I didn't know that about you, Phil. That's your sense of humor. <laughs> <laughs> oh,
0: no. oh, absolutely. And they were, they had drinks served too. Yeah. Right? We're yeah. still, we're still polishing off uh, pretzels.
1: So many pretzels. It was their wellness. <laughs> <laughs> right, They were doing a whole thing about wellness. And then this was like their blow off the wellness party. Let's bring in some fat comedians and feed everyone pretzels.
0: Yeah. free, And they had so much beer left over. Did you see this in all the cases? And they were like, what do we do with this free beer? And I'm like, shit, I should have said no to the pretzels. Then I could put my my hat in the ring for the beer. <laughs> <laughs>
1: So, Josh has a trunk full of pretzels. So I really do. I left them in the, car. in the street.
0: Yeah, I finally found a good purpose for that black car sitting in the heat. It's a, it's a pretzel warmer. <laughs> I might start my own pretzel wagon, like in The Simpsons. Maybe that's it. I'll just do corporate shows and try to get the leftovers. Um, so thanks for doing this, dude. I know you got a show this evening and we're fitting this in between two shows. So I do appreciate you taking the time to to sit down. No worries. Yeah. So I'm going to ask you the same thing that I asked just about everybody else is, uh, is how did you get into like, wait, maybe, maybe what was life before comedy and how did you get into comedy? Um, I mean, uh, I think
1: I, I I had a typical childhood, but, uh, I I started in entertainment when I was about 14. I was a kid actor, uh, before I got into stand-up. So my first, uh, I, I started, I mean, I was just really interested in performance. I think I was seven years old when I figured out that playing Uncle Buck was John Candy's job. Yeah. And I was like, Oh, wait. So like my dad goes to an office, but John Candy is Uncle Buck for money. I'm like, that's, <laughs> that's gotta be a way better job. And I was always, uh, I was always into into comedy uh i mean it's one of my favorite things just just seeing people laugh might be my favorite thing in the world and my dad said that when i was a little kid i i understood what was funny before i could possibly know why it was funny okay like he'd watch shows with me and my mom would be like this is inappropriate and he's like there's no way that he understands what's happening but anytime that there was a joke i, I laughed i knew that it was a joke i knew that it was funny. My dad's like, "There's no way you understand why that's funny. There's no right. way you get the references, but you laughed because
0: you knew it was a joke. You had like a sixth sense for timing, kind of thing. You could tell maybe by the cadence, and yeah, or like, you were like one of those pigs that can smell the truffles, you know, you know underground. I, I, I don't <laughs> know what it
1: was, but I just like I, I I loved comedy, and Dad showed me stuff like way earlier than I was supposed to see it too. Like yeah. I, I remember watching Life of Brian when I was about seven. Yeah, and uh, and and I I when I was a When I was a little kid, the funniest part of that whole movie to me was in the beginning, when uh, the little painting of Jesus is flying up (laughs) and gets right in front of the sun and screams and plummets back to earth (laughs) in a fiery mess. I thought that was absolutely hilarious. But uh, like I started out, I was doing like uh, I did. uh, I used to do all my presentations in school were like performances. I'd do a do a sketch or I did uh write a small play and that's how i would do my my class presentation and uh and so my my teacher uh got i i was like too shy to actually go out for the school play but uh, like my teacher could tell that like that's really where i wanted to go so she talked to the teacher in charge of the school play and i got in sixth grade i was the script prompter for the school play so I, I sat with the director who was a, a professional actor, Roger Barton, oh. and I, I made sure everyone was like on with their lines. They were doing uh, Shakespeare's uh, Midsummer Night's Dream, So it was um, quite a lot for uh, middle school students to be, to wrap their mouths around, you know, yeah. the, the bard. And uh, so I, I, because I was there every day reading the script and making sure everyone was on point, I, um, I, learned the entire play and yeah. so you could understudy uh, that, well that's what they did they made me the male understudy so if oh, anyone shit. couldn't make rehearsal and at one point it looked like one kid was going to miss a performance and they actually had me in his costume and he showed up just in time and we, we switched outfits but I I became like the male understudy or the stand-in so I I, I stood in and, and learned every part and uh, Roger sort of saw that I had this knack for this and, and talked to my parents into getting me into acting classes so I Started taking classes at Young People's Theater in Toronto. They have a really good program for kids if they're interested in theater, and they do summer workshops. But they also do like after-school and and weekend stuff. And I did that for many years. And then, I I, after I did the the script prompting for the school play every year after that, I had the confidence to audition. You know, like uh, and the teachers would be like, you know, seventh grade the teachers like are you, well, you better audition this year? And I was like, okay. So I went out and auditioned, got roles subsequently every year after that. And, uh, uh, then I, I knew I wanted to stick with it. So I auditioned for the Etobicoke school of the arts for their drama program. And I got into that. And when I was in, uh, ninth grade, so it started high school, my grade school called me up and asked me if I'd come back and do their school show again, because they were doing Shakespeare. Okay. They're doing much Ado do about nothing. And they wanted to bring back some students who'd worked on the, uh, Midsummer Night's dream production so that they had, uh, uh, it could help the younger students sort of work with the, 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 source material. So a buddy of mine, Pat Doyle, we both were in high school and came back and did the play and I got cast as Dogberry, and I kind of felt bad for like all the kids at the school because right. it's like for some of them this should have been their chance to like have finally have the lead in the play and they bring back guys who left <laughs> to steal the roles from them again but um uh doing that show uh because like all, all the school plays at my grade school where uh it was either shakespeare or they did a play written by my gym teacher and his wife okay who ran the the school's like theater production every year. It was my gym teacher, Mr. Long and his wife. And um they would always integrate whatever show they did with gymnastics and dance. They had like oh, a gymnastics okay. and dance club at the school. So they combined that with like the drama club. And so all of our school shows would have like intervals, like dance numbers, but like Cirque du Soleil kind of oh, dance wow. numbers because all these kids would be doing like Flips and cartwheels and like, I remember at one point like two you know grade two students, um, doing like a, a, a walkover thing where like they're they're holding each other around the waist and their legs. Oh are yeah, yeah, yeah. They do that they flip do that, over like each flip other. Flip over and flip over, and so all of our school shows had this weird gymnastics uh, aspect to it, but it also meant that the entire stage was like covered in crash mats and gymnastic mats, so you could get away with amazing pratfalls as a, as you know, and, and I always had the comic relief role. So I was always doing ridiculous crap um, and just doing like giant big overdone falls. And uh, so when I was playing dogberry somewhere in the second act, I would have this really moment where I get really excited because there's going to be a trial and I would, uh, uh, you know, end up hurting myself. I was so excited, you know, like I'd walk into a, uh, walk into a door frame and then stumble back, <laughs> right. fall down a flight of stairs for cheap laughs in the second act. And, um, one of the girls actually, uh, uh, Catherine Long, who's my, my gym teacher's uh, daughter who also went to the school. Uh, she was already, uh, a professional actor. She'd done uh, a bunch of things at that point, including, um, uh, she was the lead in the Goosebumps Haunted Mask.
0: Oh, okay. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. And uh, girl, if yeah, I'm yeah, mistaken. Yeah, yeah,
1: So her agent uh, had come to see the show and saw me hurtling myself down a flight of stairs for cheap laughs and was like, well, he's just doing this for laughs. I can get him paid for that. And that was actually <laughs> her, her pitch. So... Um, she gave me her business card, and I talked to my parents, and they were like, you know, as long as it doesn't mess with your school, this is what you want to do, you can do it. So we had a meeting with Mary, and she, you know, took me on as a client, and she's still my agent. Oh, been very to, cool. We've been together for, jeez, doing the math in my head real quick now, twenty three years. Wow, we've been working together. Uh, she's she out hasn't always been my main agent because she when she, when I first signed with her, her deal was. She repped kids. Right. So when I reached, uh, 16, I got moved up to the adult agent, but she still repped me for industrials and commercials. Okay. So I was, I, okay. uh, Mary always had a hand and I was with, I was originally with the core group was the agency and, uh, years ago they dissolved the talent half and now they're just a literary agency, but at the time they were well respected literary and talent. And, um, so I ended up having, uh, Several agents through the core group at, uh, with Mary always having a hand in my thing just because I uh, it was such a shit time for the business. That right, right. People would retire or go off to do other things. Like one of my agents retired. Another one of my agents, uh, uh, Scott Notman, who's uh, I, I still keep in touch with, and actually he's cousins with uh, Mel Scarfano, who plays um, Winona Earp, but also Mrs. McMurray on our show. So it's always a small world. He he was like I. <laughs> I can't do this. I got a family. I'm going to back to teacher's college. <laughs> oh, wow. I was like, okay, you know, thanks for helping Scott, uh, to his credit, got me my uh, SNL audition. That oh never, yeah. That never went anywhere. Cause I sent a terrible fucking tape to them. But, uh, but he got, he got me a solicited audition. Like they, they were expecting my tape. That's awesome. But uh, yeah, so I, that's how I started. And then my first job was actually a Goosebumps episode called "The Haunted Mask Part 2. so Catherine was uh was in that as well. So it was kind of fun because the the you know the the family that helped me find my agent were were in my first job with me, and uh, and I think actually Mary repped like three of us in 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 that episode on that episode, at least three of us on that episode. And yeah, that that was my my start in acting was playing bullies in in Canadian television. <laughs> actors are <laughs> teeny tiny little people and I I pretty much was you know, by the time I was 14 I was 510 probably 200 pounds so uh <laughs> and and I mostly had this voice my voice dropped, <laughs> my voice dropped uh in, in seventh grade I went from a soprano in the school choir to a bass overnight so I, I'd go into it when I was 14 15 I was going into auditions and I had this like Serious low man voice in this chubby baby face, and uh, it was it was really hard to get work because I played older than my age, right? And they don't want that. They need they need someone that's older that plays younger because they don't like hiring teenagers to play teenagers because there's too many rules, right? They want they want someone in their twenties who looks fourteen to yeah. play 14 because an actual 14 year old you've got you got to make sure there's a tutor there's all you know, like all these things that uh, uh make it harder you know there's there's limits to how many hours they can work and all aaron power really should be a child actor he would be aaron <laughs> the power look on your face could clean up like, <laughs> like literally he should just be doing degrassi like, for the rest of his life just how come he's never graduated
0: <laughs> Like, he could what, have been Tom Holland. He could what have been they Spider-Man. Want. They
1: want someone in their 30s who looks, you know, 14. That's, yeah. that's, uh, it's like I, I always had casting agents tell me, like, ah, oh, it, it, you're, you're going to grow into your type. Like, you're going to, you're eventually going to be an age where you can play your <laughs> where you can work. <laughs> but it, for a long time, my struggle was that I, I was physically bigger than, uh, you know, most of the actors. Um, so, like a lot of the teenage roles, I would go out and read for. It's like frightened child, and I'm not believable as a frightened yeah. child. And so, I played bullies. That was my it was my bread and butter for many years. Was playing bullies uh, for a good two years. The only job I I got was beating up handicap people and made for TV movies. Oh my god! I don't know what it was about my face that. <laughs> hey, said, you're a sweetheart. I <laughs> I hate the handicap, but that was the job I had. I did. Actually, I actually did a movie with uh, Blake Lively's brother. Oh, okay. Uh, It was a Meredith Baxter Burney film, the mom from Family Ties, called Crash Course. And it was based on a true story about a kid who gets hit by a drunk driver and uh, gets brain damage because they have to remove part of his brain to save his life. And then the mother and the father's fight to... You know, get drunk driving made more illegal. I really, I really don't <laughs> made <know>. more illegal, <laughs> you know, prosecute this guy and, and the, the difficulties of raising the son and, and Blake Lively's brother played the guy. And, and, uh, I was actually in my, my first year at Humber when I, when I got that role and, uh, I played a jock, which was always funny when I got hired to play an athlete of any <laughs> kind. And my, my character's name was literally Jock. Jock, yeah, it was like me in a Letterman's jacket. (laughs) My scene is: I'm walking through this. We're on a train going home, and I I walk past, and I see this hockey helmet. So I smack it, and of course, it's a kid with brain damage. So he, uh, it it hurts him. So then he gets up and confronts me for smacking him in the head, and I deny doing it, and but he knows that I did it, and, (laughs) and guilts me, and then later on sends me a muffin to show me that it's okay. And that, and that, you know, he's a good person. I don't
0: know. We really don't know what the point of that. So that was, was the script or that just happened to be the unfortunate set of extras that were in the scene. That, that that was the script. He just walked through and they're like, improvise, you smack some kid in the helmet and it turns out he's got brain <laughs> damage. This, this was the script.
1: And, and I remember like really, cause we were shooting in an actual like via train, right. Uh, in like the, the <coughs> train warehouse, like in, in South Etobicoke in Toronto. And, uh, so the video village was set up outside of the train. And every time we yelled cut, uh, Blake Lively's brother would get up and, and go and watch the playback. And, and I was, this so this was my first year at Humber, but that night was like the, my high school convocation, like the, okay. everyone was getting their diploma. So all the graduates were supposed to come back to the high school to get the diploma. And, and so I really was hoping that we would have a, a quick day and, and shooting had been, there was like a, my original call time, and then they had an earlier call time. They they called it, see if I could show up earlier, and I like rushed there, hoping, oh my god, maybe we'll be finished early. But then there was complications that we didn't end up starting till the uh, original start time, anyways. But like every time he left, it was just like you're you're holding up the shoot. Like, right. we can like let's just let's just go. Yeah, and um like the director will tell you, you know, you don't have to see. And I remember at one point we redid a scene cuz he didn't like how his hair was sticking out from the helmet and in my head all I could like, like I didn't say this but in my head all the thing is like you're playing a mentally handicapped guy is your hair is is the hair going to be your character's number one concern right like, uh but uh we had to do our, our close-ups our reactions and um he was like he was very he was an actor and he was really believed in himself as an actor And, uh, so he needed a perfect sight line. So I was, he had me, he asked if I would like, you know, get close to the, where's the sight line going to be. And then he needed my face in there. And I remember I was just hugging a cameraman to supply this guy with the, the sight line he needed for the scene. And we did like, and we would do a take and then he'd leave and then go watch and we'd do another take and then he'd leave. and, And I was just getting fed up with this. And I was, I just turned to the camera guys and I was like. While we're waiting for him, can we do my reactions? Yeah. And they were like, you don't need him to read lines. I'm like, I have an idea. Why don't you grab a script and read his lines? I'm going to do this crazy thing I heard about called acting. <laughs> and and we, we shot my, we did three takes of my reactions in the time it took him, him to, to go watch to the scene, booth and Jesus. come back. And what's funny is like he was standing next to the director and they radioed the director and said, we're just going to shoot K-Trev's reactions. And the director was like, okay, yeah, that's fine. And so he, they, I guess they didn't say anything to him because he came back and he's like, so do we want to do yours now? And I'm like, oh no, we're done. And he was yeah. like, what do you mean? I was like, oh, well, well, we decided not to wait for you. And while you were uh, out there, we we did three takes. And he was like, oh, you didn't mean to read the lines? like, no, it turns out uh, I, we didn't need you at all. They just told me where approximately you would be. I looked in that area and I recorded the things that I had to say. It was great. And, uh, and he was like, oh, okay. And they walked away and this, this old woman, who was an extra, put her hand on my arm and I I leaned over and and she like sort of called me down. And she's like, we have been waiting for a week for someone to put that little prick in his place. Thank you so
0: much. <laughs> <laughs> There's, yeah, like, dude, I've, I, I've, I've, I think I've been on two shows where I actually had lines, but I've done a lot of extra work. And some of those, those shoots where you just, and that's the extra, you just, you do nothing. You just stand there, you do what you're told and that's it. And uh, this happened recently. I was doing one, we were filming overnight and it was the scene where. You know, this guy walks into the room. I'm a just a cameraman. That's it. I walk out of the room. Action! I walk out of the room. But this, yep. but the actor walks into the room, and we pass almost at the same time. And our timings were off. Sometimes he'd come in too early and block me, and then I'd go around or whatever. But, but there was one time, out of nowhere, right, right as we were, he, he right as I was going out of the door, and he was going in the door. He just looks over me. He's like, uh, can you grab me a cup of coffee or whatever. And it's like, and I walked. And I was like, he's never. That's not the line. He hasn't said that to me once so far. But I'm walking right towards where the craft table is. And so I'm like, he might be serious and the last thing I want to do is piss him off. So I walk over and I get him two coffees like he asked for. I didn't know what to put in them. So I made one of them, you know, cream and sugar, one of them just cream or whatever. And I <laughs> and I come back and one of the ADs is like, he's like, What are you what are you doing with the two cup? I go, Well, I don't I don't think I'm supposed to get these. But he on the way out he was like, Hey, grab me a couple coffees. And we were he wasn't mic'd, you know, he's walking up to the where the boom was. So I'm like, I it's I would rather be safe and not meet them. And I swear to God, he gets on the radio, starts telling people, oh, you'd never believe what Josh just did. <laughs> <laughs> they all know me from other things they've actually worked with me on, With like home. We did home reno TV shows and stuff together with these same crew here in yep. Ottawa. So they all know me. They all know what I do and everything like that. But they. They thought it was the funniest fucking thing in the world. <laughs> the actor comes back, he's like, oh, dude, you're the best, that's so much. He's like, no, I just, I like to sort of fuck around a little bit and just try to, was getting in character. I'm like, we did like seven takes before that. I
1: did so, uh, I did a movie a couple years back called The Art of the Steel, uh, which is on Netflix. Yeah, and, uh, I've, I've seen it. Mike Wilmot's in it, and uh, uh, Jay Baruchel and, and Kurt Russell star, and uh, Matt Dillon's in it. And uh, I had a scene with Matt Dillon and it's actually Scott McCrickard, another Toronto comic. We played Polish mobsters in this <laughs> movie. We're in, the, we're in the opening sequence. And uh, I had a scene with Matt Dillon, and we're waiting you know, for action to do this, like walk through the museum that we're doing. And Dillon is an actor, like Matt Dillon. There's a reason that guy's been working as long as he has. He is a phenomenal actor. And um, he starts before action. He's in character, and, and I'm an idiot. And so I'm, I'm sitting there and, and McCrickard and I are wearing velour tracksuits.
0: Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Polish mobsters with, with like big gold
1: chains. And, and, uh, Matt Dillon comes up to me like, we're waiting for action. I'm just sort of leaning against the wall. And he comes up and he's like, this is a good suit. This is, this is good. This is a good look on you. I like, I like this look. Yeah. This is a good look. And I'm like, Oh, thanks. I really had nothing to do with it. The wardrobe lady picked it out and he gives me this look. And I was like, Oh shit! You're <laughs> acting. You're acting. You're acting, and I'm an idiot. I'm I'm sorry, Matt uh, Dillon. You're a good actor, and I'm an idiot. I'm sorry. You probably shouldn't talk to me. I'm an idiot. <laughs> and I was like, what's, what's wardrobe. <laughs> uh, and they yell, "Action!" Oh, and he thanks. goes off, the and it's like, "Oh, I'm the most embarrassed I've ever been." <laughs> oh,
0: that stuff's funny. So. You're acting. You've been in several things. Where does comedy come into play? Where do you Where do you decide I'm going to start doing stand up? You well, said you were in Humber, so obviously you were already sort of.
1: I I, I always loved comedy, as I said, and it's like I got into acting. And you know, most of the stuff I did was you know either playing bullies or you know it was you know, silly crap, whatever. Lots of dumb commercials too. Uh, but I, I always loved the comedy part. And the one thing I found about studying acting is. They really glaze over comedy pretty quick.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Like they spend, they focus so much time on, on you know, technique and, and uh, this and that and God, the number of times I've had to do absurdist theater and Chekhov and Ibsen and just the most talking out your ass horseshit <laughs> theater. <laughs> And I, and I, I get it. It's classics and they're wonderful, but they're also fucking boring. And you know it. You all know it. You just, it's the emperor's new clothes. You all yeah. just pretend it's so good because you don't want to be the one idiot who goes, this is really fucking boring. Why did I spend my money on this? Um, so, but it's like the, and then comedy was just like one unit in 10th grade was the comedy unit. Right. And I, and I was like, but the comedy is when they're like, I mean, plays are broken up into dramas and comedies like it's yeah it's one of the main things how do we just glaze over that how do i mean yeah. there's how do we not focus on the technique L- of, the, of the thing that you were going to spend half of your career trying to do
0: the, the logo is literally the two masks 50% yeah. of it being the comedy like how mask. do we just
1: gloss over that yeah and um and then like i talked to my friends who'd gone on to do uh you know drama and university and and they were all i'm like what's it like and they're like it's preparing me to be a high school drama teacher. Mm. They're like, it's not preparing me to be an actor. Like the skills I'm learning are going to make me a wonderful scholar of drama, but I, I'm not, I don't feel like I'm getting better as an actor. And, uh, and then, so when I was looking for my post-secondary, uh, I, I always loved comedy. And I, I'd already actually, when I was in 10th grade, my buddy and I started taking second city improv classes. Okay. Uh, Cause we, we, because that was when we had the unit in comedy and we just were like, that's it. That's all we're going to do. And so we, we wanted to do more. And at the time, second city didn't have youth classes. There was, you know, it was all adults. Um, So we, my parents were like, our, our kids want to do this. They're 14. And the second city was like, well, we don't really offer classes for kids. So they would have to be in classes with adults. Are they okay? And it's like, yeah, like my, my, I think my dad was like, "You'd be hard pressed to come up with something my kid hasn't already said." So, <laughs> you're not going to offend them or shock them. I right. guarantee you. And um, so, Second City acquiesced, and they're like, "Okay, you know, as long as they're not disruptive and and you know are are comfortable doing it." And so, my buddy Matt Park and I were at one point the youngest people to ever study improv with the Second City. And like the closest person to our age in our class was like, uh, 18 year old. It was our, my friend, Maeve, who's, uh, <laughs> she, it turns out I, I, her, her brother sang at the local bar in our neighborhood, oh. Grady. <laughs> and, uh, but I mean, everyone else was like, you know, 30, something 40, you know, it was uh, half of it was like people who wanted to be entertainers and the other half were. Uh, you know, like accountants who had to do the occasional presentation and needed to learn how to loosen up
0: They're treating it more like a Toastmasters thing as opposed to, you know, improv yeah. and, and comedy. So we did, we did several years of, um, of doing
1: those classes and actually, uh, helped start an improv group at, uh, the Etobicoke school of the arts with a bunch of other students. And uh, I got to work with terrific teachers, uh, I mean, Al Catlin and Lisa Merchant and Jerry Schaefer and uh, Moira Dumphy, who were all you know, like second city, and and uh, the Moira and Jerry were in, in the Chumps with uh, uh, a bunch of other great uh, and Lisa, so like really great Toronto improvisers and comedians, and we got to learn from them. But by the time I finished high school, I was like, like I don't want to, I don't want to do another four years of Ibsen. Right. And, um, my buddy Liam, leafing through the Humber College pamphlet, found a comedy writing and performance class. And, and I was like, well, that's what I'm going to do then. I'm going to go study comedy. And it was a, it was a bit of a fight with my mom. Right. She wanted me to go to university. Mom was always a, a, a nervous one and God bless her. You need that in your life. My dad, I think he always secretly wanted to be a performer. So he was always like, gung-ho about it like you want to do it go ahead and do it you know i think he regretted going into business and wished he'd he'd uh because my grandma was a performer she was a her and her identical twin sister had a song and dance team the Pierce sisters back at like turn of the century saskatchewan okay they were they uh born and raised in moose jaw and learned how to tap dance by correspondence a dance school (laughs) in new york would mail them these folded up Dance numbers that had all the steps mapped out on the floor and they would wow. unroll these giant things and their steps would be there. And that's how they'd learn their dance routines was on these giant mats. And so they'd. It's like IKEA instructions dance. for yeah. dance kind of thing. And they ended up when they were 18, they got invited to do like an Alaskan showboat cruise and, uh, their, their mom made them take their older sister, uh, with them to be their chaperone and, uh, God, it was probably the only adventurous thing my grandma's older sister ever did in her whole damn life. <laughs> and.
0: Uh, <laughs> it was it a chaperone in Alaskan the chaperone boat Alaskan cruise? An
1: Alaskan showboat cruise. And, and, uh, <laughs> and then the, uh, they, they came back from that, and, and, you know, grandma performed forever, and, and uh, uh, they opened their own dance studio in Vancouver, and then the Depression hit, and no right. one had money for dance classes. So that went. Went out the window. They uh, had to give that up, but uh, because they were performers, they uh, during the depression they would, you know, go out and they would perform at hotels and, and restaurants and entertain people, and then they'd get you know free room and board, food. You know, they, they could always have a night out with with their husbands because they could do a show in exchange for a nice evening, right? And um, but the the performance bugged kind of always been in my family uh but you know I, I, no one no one had the had the guts to chase it till I showed up and uh but mom was always uh, scared of everything she you know m- m- my dad's a glass half full my mom's a someone's going to come and take the glass <laughs> so she she always wanted me to be a lawyer or something you know so she was like you could be an entertainment lawyer see then you're still in entertainment but
0: you're a lawyer be a comedy club owner.
1: And I'd be like, uh. No, Mom, because then I'd end up repping someone that's awful and I'd be angry because I'd know I'm better
0: than them secretly. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um Well now we're lazy. in an age now where people are encouraging everybody to take the chance too. Like all of the whole, like, hey, have something to fall back on. And then and, and in interviews like this that I've heard, I've heard hundreds of comics who same thing. Their parents are like, Why don't you just get something to fall back on? And Brian Regan was saying in his, he was like, he's like, I, I just couldn't I couldn't do it. He's like, I did it. But the whole time I'm like, I don't even want to do well on these tests or whatever. Cause I'm like, I'm pursuing a negative goal. I'm, I'm pursuing something that I don't want to have happen. Yeah. You know what I mean? So one
1: of my theories was like, I'm really lazy. So if I'm like working hard at this thing, yeah. Why? Like, I, I'm not going to want to work hard at another thing. And what if I get too comfortable being a lawyer and my dream goes out the window. So, I mean, like I, I'm a, firm believer that you need to have a job like i've had buddies who are like i'm gonna quit everything and see how comedy does and it's like well how's comedy doing is comedy paying the bills now no then don't quit your job yeah you don't quit your job until you have another job i never quit my job i I, my last day job i was a a line cook at kelsey's and i sort of when i when i started at that restaurant i went in and i was like i'm a comedian I'm like, uh, I'm like, I'm I'm. like, you need part-time employees, I will come in part-time. If I don't have gigs and you need someone to work more hours, I will be available. Like Anytime I am here and available, you can call on me and I will show up and I will work. I'm like, but this is my main priority and I will go and do this. And if you ever tell me not to do this, I will leave. Yep. And that's the way it goes. And, and uh, the boss who hired me was like, cool, you're straightforward. I get it. I think we can work around this. And then, uh, you know, I worked there for, for a few years and it just got to a point where I was on the road so much that, um, like I, I had seniority in the kitchen. So anytime Mm. I was there, I got the best hours, but I was on the road so much that when a new manager came in to take over, uh, he was looking at the books and was just like, who's this guy, this doesn't make any sense. (laughs) So he just, uh, he just stopped. He just told them to not put me on the schedule anymore so i would call in for shifts and they'd be like you're not on the schedule and i was like okay i'm like should i come in and talk to somebody and they're like you probably should i'm like okay well i'm going on the road so i might do that after and then i went on the road and i just never called in after that i just waited for them to to call me and uh and they never did and i actually talked to someone earlier this year i'm still technically employed by that kelsey's in (laughs) (laughs) etobicoke because they have never finalized my termination because they had no grounds to fire me. So they tried to force me to quit. And technically that is uh, illegal. So they actually owe me a severance package from that uh, restaurant because they just stopped working me. They made my job obsolete. and uh, uh, But I've never bothered to go in. They actually tore down in like rebuilt that restaurant but i'm
0: still on the books still book. like, you should wait till till you're like in your 50s and then be like oh well it turns out i'm terminated now and uh i've got 20 years of uh, tenure at this place so that yep. severance package is looking <laughs> <crazy>. <laughs> 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 we got to give him his, his yearly amount for every year he worked here
1: if anyone will listen to this is from the cara corporation <laughs> the kelsey's <laughs> at queensway in etobicoke i'm still technically employed at yeah. and uh, if you can reach out and talk we can, you know you owe me money yeah. And I'm not going to be a dick about it. You know, <laughs> we can come to an amicable agreement <laughs> gift, cards. Yeah, you know? gift cards. Yeah. How many gift cards? How many gift cards?
0: <laughs> Kelsey's awesome. geez,
1: last time I was in a Kelsey's you're Kelsey's you're a good company, but you're starting to get into American uh, serving sizes. No one needs a fish bowl of ice cream. And you know that. Yep. I uh, I have to say as a native Torontonian, uh, I am very disappointed in Rob Ford uh, as a mayor. I expect, I think we've come to expect better from our politicians than smoking crack and blaming it on alcohol. Uh, uh, But I have to say, as a comedian, I love this guy. Uh, He is the gift that keeps on giving. Every every time he opens his stupid face, something amazing happens. Uh, He's a big boy. Um, He has plenty to eat at home. on the news. I don't know a guy who can get away with saying that about his wife at a party. He did it on the news in the morning. That was the first thing that happened one day. We woke up and the mayor's making eating pussy jokes on the news. My favorite thing he ever did was challenge all the other mayors to a weight-loss competition and gain weight. No one put him up to this. This was his idea. Him and Doug were gonna lose weight, and they were gonna challenge all the other mayors to lose more weight than them. Then he said he scheduled a weigh-in every week and then got angry when people expected him to show up to the thing he scheduled. And on the final one, he came out, got on the scale, realized he'd gained weight, and then injured himself getting off the scale. (laughs) That is literally the fattest thing I have ever heard of. (laughs) And I
0: am a big, fat man. That is is the fattest thing. (laughs) (laughs) So do you remember, like, what was your first time on stage doing stand-up like?
1: Well my my first attempt at doing stand up was uh a high school talent show. Uh, oh really? Uh and um well sorry I, no, I guess it was a, I, I did impressions at a 5th grade talent show. Uh and I I can't do any of the voices now because my voice has changed. But it was like, you know, it was you know, Looney Tunes characters or Tiny yeah, yeah, Tunes yeah. characters. Um that was like probably the first time I stood up and did something that resembled stand up in front of a crowd. Uh um, and then I, I auditioned for a talent show in high school doing stand up, but, uh, it wasn't a very good stand up. So I, I didn't end up doing it. Um, but then, uh, my first time like getting up on a stage and really doing stand up was, uh, my first year at Humber, uh, at the Ajax Yak Yuck Yaks because it was easier to get on in Ajax than it was in Toronto. Uh, so we'd all call in, uh, you know, on the Tuesday and, uh, we just sort of had, uh, a group that we'd call in and with, with whoever of us got on, we'd all drive out. Okay. And you could book everybody. Sometimes we'd get everybody on. Sometimes we'd only get a few of us on, but we'd all go out anyway. Oh, okay. Oh, okay, team, okay. Okay. Support each other and, you know, just try to meet comics and meet people like that. Uh, you know, like doing that, like we, we hang out after the show and have drinks with the comics. And that's how I met, you so know, so Tim Nutt and Martha Chavez and Jason Rouse and, you know, Derek Edwards. Um, you know, all these, all these comics, all these, because they were, you know, Mark Trinidad. I, my very, one of my very first tape of my set, Mark Trinidad sat down next to my friend and uh, started making jokes about me to the thing. And then he came up and told me that he did it so that I wasn't pissed <laughs> off. Uh, <laughs> so I, I, I don't know where that tape is. Dustin Latishiewski probably still has it. There's a tape of, of my, one of my first stand up sets and Mark Trinidad chirping me the whole time. Uh, yeah, no, that was, that was, and I was cocky too. Cause I'd come from a theater background cause I'd done, you know, five years of theater school. I had second city training. I had, I had, you know, all the, all this training going in.
0: You didn't come with the stage fright that I'm sure a lot of yeah, comics. It, first time with. I did stand up, I was like,
1: this is nothing. I've done a monologue recital. I've done a one man show, you know, the, but it's different when it's, when you're the writer and yeah. the director and the producer and the star, like when you've done everything uh, you know, standing up and reading and and you know reciting the words that of an award-winning show.
0: It's already polished yeah, material. It's at that already point. fantastic. Yeah. Uh,
1: uh, all you have to do is not fuck it up. But uh, when you're when it's all your stuff and and you know you you think it's hilarious and then you get up there and do it to a crowd and it's like oh I'm the only one who thought that was funny and. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> And I remember my, my first set, I had two jokes that worked and one of them was about, one of them I'd written on the way into the parking lot about the setup of the strip mall that the Ajax Yak Yuck, Yaks was in because there was an adult video store next to a milk store. And I'm like, that just say, seems wrong to me. Like, I don't know why, but I would definitely be questioning the content of that milk. <laughs> and that got a laugh and then nothing else got a laugh until I said... Uh, when they introduced me, they said I was a student of comedy at Humber College, and apparently I skipped too many classes. And that got a big laugh. I'm like, so I'm not not funny, but I'm just not funny when I just not everything I think is funny is funny, or I don't know how to make it all funny for everyone else. And and uh, it was actually the advice Mike McDonald gave me uh, when we at the second Canadian Comedy Awards, me and my buddies. Uh, got Mike into the VIP lounge and plied him with weed to give us an education on comedy. And he, he wanted to make sure he left us with a lasting piece of advice. And he was like, he, he racked his brain. He's like, I want to give you guys something good. And I think I've got it. He's like, never throw away a joke. Even if it doesn't work the first time, your instincts told you it was funny, right? There's something funny about it, but you just may not be a good enough comic to make it work now. But don't throw it away put it in a folder, put it aside and every year look over your old notes. And one day you're going to be a good enough comic to make that joke work. And, and he's right. There's, you know, there's so many things that I've, it didn't work the first time and you file it away and you come back to it later. And you're like, now I know. Right now I know. Now I presents. know how I would have presented that and whatnot. But, uh, that was my, my first stand up uh, set was, uh, yuck, Yucks ajax. Uh, I'm pretty sure. Tim Nutt was hosting. Martha Chavez was closing it out. Uh, some kid got up and did a whole bunch of jokes from Eddie Murphy's Raw and Delirious, uh, and he got called out. Right. <laughs> that
0: was that was exciting. That was... <laughs> Not that I would ask you to name names, but do you remember who it was? Oh, yeah. I never saw him again. Oh, okay, that. okay. Fair enough. Because <laughs> we have those, and sometimes you have them who, who did it, yeah, I call that now they've they've gone on and yeah no mistakes. no
1: he was uh he was he wasn't one of us he wasn't a Humber student he was some guy who showed up brought all of his friends and just did stolen material
0: yeah because maybe and, the friends uh, didn't know we've had that when i used to run the mondays we'd have people when people signed up and said what do i have to do i would just tell them the stage is yours there's no auditions or anything like that you can go up and do whatever you want and i go but just know as much as maybe the crowd won't know if you it's got to be original material because maybe the crowd doesn't know you know but but the comedians in the room know you know what i mean we know who's yep. we're we're fans of what we do it's like when someone you know finds out you know oh you're a comedian do you know who russell peters is or do you know blah 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 and it's like everybody knows who's doing well in their field yeah you know what i mean no one walks up to a hockey player and goes oh my god have you heard of sydney crosby yeah like yes of course i have i know who's doing well in the field that i would like to be a part of you know, so I just, but we've, we told that and we see people come on stage and they'll do like, they'll do their whole act where it's like Stuart Francis jokes Oh yeah, and they're, oh. and they're crushing because they're fucking Stuart yeah. Francis jokes. They're amazing jokes, but they're not yours. And the audience wouldn't know Stuart Francis by name or whatever. They may not even recognize it, you know, that they've heard, but they're, but they're great stuff. But the rest of us, the comics in the room are like, all right, look, we get it, but you can't, that's not how this works, yeah. which is interesting because I actually had, uh, uh, Julian Dion, so fu- funny enough, um, Julian and I went to an open mic one time where we could do comedy, but, um, it was a music open mic. Okay. And the, the guy on stage, I guess, my friend who was running it. He just did all covers of, of bands all night, which is fine. But Julian was like, Hey man, uh, just notice you didn't do any, like any of your own stuff all night. It was like all just covers. And he's like, you know, an open mic, you should do something original, which I just thought it was funny because. As much as we see that music all the time, people do a lot of covers oh, yeah. or whatever, no issue whatsoever. But it's like, but there are there's no there's no cover comedy.
1: Yeah, yeah, no. Not that
0: there should be. Well, actually there is.
1: Oh, really? Um, but it's
0: translation comedy.
1: Oh, okay. If you go to France, there's guys who are doing other like uh American acts uh translated. Really? There's there's a French Jerry Seinfeld who does all of Jerry Seinfeld's acts Translated. Does he
0: pay royalties for it? I don't know. I don't know. I because that would be a great fucking gig. I I have so many comics. Yeah. No. <laughs> I, I, I I could be French K Trev. <laughs> <laughs> Actually,
1: there is a French K Trev. If you watch Letterkenny, you There's a, a in one episode we go to Quebec and meet our French doppelgangers. Oh my god! And uh, they hired a, an actor from Montreal, Dominic DeRosa, who's become a, a good buddy of mine. And and he looks so much like me that in Sudbury he'll get stopped all the time and people will, you know, ask him questions as if he was me. He looks so much like me that uh, last season when we brought the French guys back, he came around the corner in his wardrobe and my girlfriend double-taked to make sure I was still standing next to her.
0: <laughs> <laughs> That's fucking funny. What a great gig, fucking just jack material and do it in another language. Yeah, yeah. I would love to just speak Spanish because then I'll go do a great act where all the women are beautiful. I don't have to write anything and I could just crush every night. I
1: found out, I look, uh, someone, uh, friends of mine, uh, Al and Lindsay Norris, they were on vacation in Amsterdam and they sent me a picture of this famous Dutch singer who could be my brother. Yeah. And at the time, like we haircut the same like beard trimmed the same like everything about the i think he's got blue eyes that's the only noticeable difference and they sent me this picture and they're like when did you become a famous dutch performer <laughs> and, and i looked into the guy's career and he's like uh, this really famous uh, singer in dutch but he started out as an impersonator of another dutch singer and got so popular impersonating that guy that he started putting out his own material and became his own act.
0: But Fuck, he isn't started that like, isn't that like Gallagher too? His brother became more famous than him for the act, and so
1: I look like a guy who got famous because he looked like another guy. So I, I'm, <laughs> if, if when Letter Kenny cancels, I'm just moving to the Netherlands and learning <laughs> Dutch songs because I can impersonate two fuckers now. <laughs>
0: That's, that's great that's fucking hysterical now i uh this one is i mean it's it's a sort of a, a average question but from the time that you started stand-up how quickly did you go from you know being an open micer to doing the amateur spots the guest spots like how how long before you started getting the paid work uh it took me forever really i got uh,
1: when i went homegrown i was 12 years in Really? Okay. I started, I, I started, my first set was 2000. That's when I started at Humber. And, um, now and one of the reasons it was so slow is, is I was trying to do too much. Okay. Um, I, I, you know, I, I was, uh, after doing Humber, I, I was already an actor. Like I already had, you know, like I was the only guy, in, I think in my Humber year who had an IMDB page. Okay. Um, so I was already trying to do acting work, uh, I had a day job. I was in college. Uh, well, I guess I didn't have a day job. I had an evening job. I was in college. I, I had a sketch troupe and I was trying to do stand up. So I was doing a bunch of things. Okay. But nothing really well. And uh, you know, I just, I couldn't pick a focus. I want, like I wanted to do it all. I wanted to have all the experience. And, and my belief is always to be the most well-rounded performer I could be. You have to try everything. You right. Know, you have to, You have to do stuff just because you think it's going to be hard and and so i always wanted to challenge myself but i found that i I was just spinning my tires because i was never doing enough of one thing to gain traction on it and um after you know a couple rough years and and, uh uh running out of money and uh earning money back i was like i you know I, i gotta make a decision on on what i do and I I was like, okay, well, it's it's gotta be stand-up because that's the one I can control. Right. Like the acting is great, but there's too many people making decisions in that. You know, like you never know whose nephew or cousin you're auditioning against. You know, you never know what it is that's going to you could give them the best audition ever, but something's gonna keep you out of that role. Right. You know, like I I I I did a reading once in an audition. And the the casting agent was like, that's the best read for that role we've ever had. You are five years too young.
0: Fuck sakes.
1: <laughs> you know, and it's like, so. It's, even if you're amazing at it, there's something could hold you out of it. And then with a the sketch troupe, you're relying on, you know, two to three other people being as focused as you, right. as devoted as you. You know, you've got... You get, those people have to and, and there's no fucking money in sketch. It right. pays dick. Like even at its high even at its highest level, it's not a well paying job. Um so he was like, Well, stand up. Stand up's the one that it, it all depends on me. I can control when I'm doing it, how I'm doing it, you know, everything. It comes down to me and I I reworked my whole life around stand up. I I, I was working at Milestones and I quit and I
0: went to- work. Another Kara. <laughs> yep.
1: I, I literally, I, I, I gave Milestones my two weeks and then I went to restaurants over and applied at Kelsey's because they needed daytime, part-time daytime. Okay. And, and I was doing like lead prep. You know, uh, I was doing 14 hour days at Milestones and it was like, this is killing me. Right. So I went across the across the street to Kelsey's, uh, got hired at part-time day shifts, called my agent and said, I'm, I'm focusing on standup. You know, like you can submit me for things and if I'm available, I'm going to do it. But I, I, I got to pick one or, you know, I got to pick one to focus on right now. And I'm like, I know it's going to make it harder for you to earn money with me for a while, but trust me, if this thing works, eventually it'll all come back around And, and Mary, God bless her. was like, I'm, I'm nervous, but okay, you know, go ahead and do it. If you think this is the best way to do it, go ahead and do it. So, I reworked my whole life to be about stand up, and I was like, I became every night, every night I was out doing, I was averaging at least a show a night for like three months, you know, sometimes multiple shows. Uh, you know, I, I, on a good night in Toronto, you could get four sets in running around to different rooms. I, I called it the Mike, Mike Rita circuit. That kid had so much hustle. He was the first one to do like all of the pot rooms in the same night. Right. And um, I was like, "Oh my god, that's possible." Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and and that's what I like. I just I started hitting it as as hard as I could. And, and for years, I'd been emailing every club in the country trying to get work. And like I, I think I showcased for Breslin six times. Wow. Over the years. And and I I'd get you know. In the beginning, it was uh, I, I didn't get picked up because he wanted me to like, you know, get out there more, do more, work on it a, b- a bit harder because I was still kind of just part time. And then I, I, I left and I came back and did another showcase. And not only had I done everything he'd asked me to do, but I did like three other things yeah. on top of it. And um, and I got passed over again. So I, I you know gave me another list of things that he thought I should do, and I went out and and I did them. And, and then, you know, I think it was like a, a year before I showcased again. And at that point I was like, I was starting to become the comedian I was going to become. Like I was, there was like a little bit of buzz about me in Toronto. Uh, I'd had that, uh, I'd had that weird standoff thing where I would do really well at a show and then a yucks comic would come up and be like, why aren't you with yuck yucks? Cause hmm. like, there's this weird thing I found that uh, the yucks comics if you would, if you did well in a show and you weren't on the roster, it, there'd be this like weird anger from the Yucks comics, like, what do you think you're too good to be on the roster? Mm. Like, why aren't you working with us? And uh, and then they'd come up and be like, So like why don't you work for Yuck Yucks? And I'm like, I've showcased three times and
0: President's passed me over. And then they'd be like, Oh, that's insane. Okay. Well, like so you're right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you're not you're not too good for that's that is one of the things that sucks about our industry. Is there is a lot of like, so what do you think you too? It's like, well, you think you too like, good for can this? I'm I'm like, just, can like, I just go out and be funny? Can't we all be friends? At the end like of the day? I don't, I'm just trying to figure this out. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'd love to be on the roster with you. I'm desperate for work. I wanted to insert this somewhere in the podcast. So if you don't mind, I'm just going to take this opportunity to, oh, sure. <laughs> to do it is, um, I, I mean, I've mentioned the, the credits at the beginning of the show, but, uh, when I saw that you were on Kimmel or whatever, I, I reached out to you that day. I PVR'd it. I probably still have it somewhere on my, on my PVR or whatever, but um, in in this industry, you know, there's so many opportunities, so many people going after things and and you know, sometimes guys get it, you know, the ones that are cut through whatever Um just so the audience knows, uh, you've had a tremendous amount of success and and you're one of the cases that every time I see something else that you've got going for you, it it makes me smile because you are a genuinely good person. Oh, thanks. Off man. stage. I, I but I mean that, you know what I mean? Like it's just every time I see something I'm like, ah, Like every now and again, the universe gets it right, and it gives it to one of the good guys, and not one of the ones who, you know, he stepped on three other people and and stabbed people. That was so. It's funny when you're talking about Mike McDonald giving you advice. Uh, The first time Mikey and I sat down and actually talked, he goes. Josh, can I give you a couple pieces of advice? He goes, uh, uh, there's a couple a couple things I've learned. He goes, uh, you know how you know who uh, your friends are in Hollywood? They're the ones that stab you in the chest. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> Jesus Christ. And, he goes, <laughs> and, then he, and then he said to me, he goes, he was talking about how, you know, these people said they're going to have him on a show the year after he got his, his uh, uh, liver transplant yeah it's gonna say kidney transplant no it's a liver transplant and he was saying he wanted to do it and they're like yeah yeah we'll have you on the show and he goes he goes i've learned a hard lesson over the years Now only hold your breath when you're underwater look <laughs> like, it was all this bleak advice and i was like okay but i figured you know who better to know it than than that guy he's done it all and, and you learn over over time that it's kind of like you know you got to you get that, that hostility. I just went on stage. I just did my job. I made people laugh, good feelings. And then it, it it is often at times, whether it's because of what roster you're on or, you know, you're not from this town or whatever, where do you, like that you're, you're met with hostility sometimes, or at least seemingly hostile just for doing a good job, which is the strangest fucking thing. People are like, what's your deal?
1: What's your bag? the number of times comics came up in the early days and like, you know, sometimes most people I've been very lucky that most of the people I've worked with have been wonderful, but every once in a while you get some, like someone trying to trying to sabotage you for whatever reason. And like, I remember someone coming up to me and, and telling me that I couldn't do a bit I was doing cause it was too close to another comics bit. And I was a big student of comedy and mm-hmm. I was very careful to never step on toes. And, and I was like, and I knew the bit that they were accusing me of doing. right. They they, it was a, a Sean Majunder bit because uh, I was doing a bit about how um, I missed kindergarten because it was easier to meet women because all you had to do was like break a Lego castle on them, <laughs> and it meant you were a couple, you know. <laughs> and, it was, and that's that just goes back to our caveman instincts. That's the most primitive way, you know, to meet someone. That's where the term "picking someone up" comes from because they'd club her over the head, pick her up, take her back to the cave.
0: I heard the same thing, but clubbing—that's what clubbing used to be. Yeah. Only you just club them over the head. And- <laughs> and
1: so, and, and and then I was told that it was like I was it was too close to the Sean Majumder bit, and, and the Sean Majumder bit about like the, your friends telling you to go ask that tell that girl that she's pretty, and you get so freaked out that instead of telling her she's pretty, you smack her and run away. Um, and so the, they were they were definitely not I was definitely not stepping on Sean's toes. Yeah, but like it, it was like we were in the same
0: world of you know it was the, the same idea, but. Not the same joke. How many awkward meeting women jokes are there? Yeah, it's the well, same thing. When I was awkward meeting a girl, only you guys just happen to be talking about the youthful part. Like there's like,
1: there's an old saying that's like, there's five jokes and everything else is just a different version of that joke. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, if you think I'm the only person who's ever come up with this idea ever, you're wrong. That like, You can go through the history of comedy and you will find that someone has done it already. You can go back, read Lysistrata, the probably the oldest existing comedy play it's a greek comedy and the entire subject like the entire play is about sex and politics it's about the war between athens and um, i want to say the spartans but it's not spartans hannibal who came over the alps with the uh with the elephants i don't read so it's the <laughs> two warring nations right and all the men are at war and all the women are back at home pissed off at the war so the women decide that they're not going to fuck the men until the war is over so they lock themselves up in castles and the men are refusing to be told what to do for the women so they're going to keep fighting no matter what but then slowly the war stops because the men are all try going to the castles to try to get the women to come out and fuck them And and finally, there's just no fighting happening because all the men are just outside the door going, come on, somebody fuck us. And the women are like, not until there's peace. And so they broker peace between the two nations. It's like, yeah, this is the oldest play in existence. And the themes are sex and politics. That's, you know, you're not original with any idea. But uh, so, but I was freaked out because I was, you know, a year and a half into comedy and I'd just been called out by a professional comedian for being a joke thief. Right. And I remember taking it to Kyle Radke being like, you know, so-and-so told me that I'm stealing jokes and he's like, so-and-so is afraid because you had a great set yep, and they're nervous that you're going to come replace them. So they're doing whatever they can to fill you with doubt. And then I ended up meeting Sean uh, and I was interviewing him for an internet TV thing. And I was like, while I have you here, and I told him the, the story and told him the bit. And he was like, I know which bit they think you stole for mine and you did not. I can tell you right here that that is an original joke you wrote. And yeah, I was like, I have it on tape. Sean Majunder says I can do the fucking joke.
0: Yep. I had, I had uh, a friend of mine, Jeff McKay was doing an interview with Scott Thompson. Now, this wasn't about stealing a joke, but it was just about this joke that I I come up with in five minutes in a green room and we were just fucking around. And and he just, Jeff liked it so much, he told Scott Thompson. And Scott Thompson's like, you gotta do that joke. It was just kind of fun to be like, I've got this little clip, little soundbite somewhere of someone going, it's good, do it. And it comes from someone that you can
1: respect, right? I'll tell you, that is one of the best guys to ever have lunch with is Scott Thompson. That guy has stories for days. Yep. I am... I'm always in awe that I've been able to become friends with so many of the people I grew up watching. Yep. And uh, you know, I, I, a couple of years ago, I did the the Calgary Comedy Festival, and it was hosted by uh, Kevin and Scott and Dave. And to have three members of the kids the in the hall it, yeah. ask you what you want for your introduction and yeah. to bring you up on stage, and it's just like, you know... You're, you're standing shoulder to shoulder with giants at this yeah. point. And
0: well, when you were referring to uh, when you were younger watching Monty Python, I was going to say that uh, that was I, I found Monty Python to be like you were saying about being able to just find the humor and maybe not even understanding all the jokes, but Monty Python and I, I grew up watching that and kids in the hall. And these were, in my opinion, two shows that were both way ahead of their time. Like I found that even oh. adults, you know, didn't quite get it. And it's like they're just way ahead of the time. Like, I mean, growing up in Canada, I don't know how it was in the States, but as a young guy, like I was very comfortable with, with the notion of homosexuality, just being a young boy because of kids in the hall. Yeah. Just Scott Thompson made gay people accessible to me at a very young age. It wasn't weird and unnatural. I didn't know any gay people, but I knew the, I knew Scott and I knew characters in the kids in the hall. And even just like all of their joke, whether it was, whether it was, you know, funny homosexual jokes or skits or whatever it was, all the different storylines and stuff that they had, I found all of it to be way ahead of its time. Like you put that out now and it would still crush. In my opinion, I had the opportunity to host for, for Scott at the, uh, the communist and same thing. We got to spend a few nights talking to each other. and, And some of the fucking things he said, that guy's hysterical and super, super smart. Oh yeah. Yeah. Did he tell you his thing about beards? Why he thinks that so many men grow, why, why so many men grow beards now? No. So I, I can't remember what started the conversation. So, so don't, blame me don't blame scott for for my recollection of it but he was saying how like uh the climate and he's gay so he has no interest in getting mad at women for any particular reason but he was like the climate of of it's not okay to be a man kind of thing was what he like again i'm i'm paraphrasing but he was saying that that guys are are made to feel like it's not okay to be a man right now to be you know not aggressive but i guess masculine masculinity is seen as maybe you know wrong he goes like you you guys you you know you have to be careful what you say to women you, you it used to be that a woman's like i just want a man to pick me up and carry me off to the bedroom and it's like that's kind of a, that's aggressive mm-hmm. you know what i mean like to even to even compliment someone you run the risk of i don't need your uh validation or whatever it is so he goes he goes as men you guys are having a hard time basically expressing your masculinity so that's why so many of you are growing beards now Is you're subconsciously trying to to have some form of masculine and now wh- while i don't i'm not like that's absolutely correct i'm like fuck that makes a lot of sense why a lot of people just out of nowhere want to grow a beard
1: i just want to people to to draw attention away from my extra chin <laughs> that's the same thing I so much
0: neck going on <laughs> the same thing as soon as i take it off they're like "Get some mustard on your chin no no the other one i'm like oh, yeah oh, fuck
1: i look like i have a baby face when i shave this down i look like a giant toddler yeah. I mean, oh he was so last fun. time i was completely clean shaven i was still working in restaurants and one of the girls i worked with was like you have no edge and i was like what do you mean she's like when you take your beard off there's no danger left you are completely safe and she's like, and that's not, and I don't mean that as a compliment.
0: <laughs> See, we got yeah. to have a little, gotta, I think that's what Scott was saying. got a little bit of edge. That's probably the best way of it. He's just like, you got to have a little have bit a of bit edge. edge. And if you can't have edge in your personalities, you're like, I don't want to make you feel of, uh, just if there's anything I can, just just fine, put the fucking edge in my face. Make me, yeah. make me gruff.
1: <laughs> uh, I don't want you guys to, to think that I'm getting down on myself. Uh, I enjoy my size. I have sex with this body. Uh, life is still pretty good. And, uh, if you've never fucked a fat person... If you've never fucked a fat person, do it. Uh... It is the best. Fat people have an exterior coating that feels like a combination between Nerf Sponge and Marshmallow. Uh, It's like fucking a cloud. It really is. A hairy, weepy cloud, but a cloud. That's funny. <laughs> I see women with skinny guys and muscly guys and I'm confused because who's ever gone, oh you know what I want to curl up with tonight? Is a leather bag filled with sticks and rocks, because that's all you're getting. <laughs> Sharp points and jagged edges sticking into you. Skinny guys, it's, oh, I'm spooning a skeleton. That's what's going on. Look at that, all bones. And with the muscly guys, oh, they brag about their rock-hard abs, because who hasn't wanted to just bury their face into a cobblestone pathway? (laughs) Oh, I cut my eye. I cut my eye on your sharp chest. This stuff is like memory foam. Uh, It'll hold a handprint. I am I am getting that looked at.
0: That is not right. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what the fuck we were talking about before that. Uh, you were talking about just the grind. And of course, like I said, having conversations with people about that material. The same thing happened to me early on. Yeah. I think maybe three months in, I did a joke. And someone's like, you can't do that joke. It's like a Ward Anderson joke. And... When when I saw Ward, like I think a year later, I stopped immediately. I respected if someone told me that he's oh, like, yeah, if yeah. I didn't know the joke, I immediately respected it because I respected the comic who told me, and still still do to this day. But this is this is one of those things where it, that's the thing that sucks in comedy is, is you got to be careful because people will tell you, you know, oh they, this I do a relationship joke, you can't do a relationship joke, you know. Well, fuck, there's only a million of them. But uh, I heard the joke a year later. Nine was nothing like his, and in terms of of. It wasn't even like oh we're even talking about the same thing like i think the similarity was the word blowjob was in both the jokes so i was kind of so i tell young comics now if they're like well so-and-so said this joke i go look there's odds that you're going to be doing the same stuff as other people i go so at the end of the day if you know if you ethically know that you didn't didn't take the joke and it's not the same as the person then just use your best golden rule all right Mm. if that if your joke is so similar to theirs that you wouldn't want i go don't if it's brand new, maybe get rid of it. Don't waste your time developing something that pretty much already exists. Yep. You know what I mean? But at the same time, if you feel like you got a fresh take, fucking do it.
1: I remember uh, having a moment like that early on and you know, calling like a summit of my comedy friends to be like, what do I do? <laughs> what do I do in this situation? And I, I'd been, for, for a long, long time, I opened up my show by uh, taking the mic out of the stand and going, I'm just going to get this out of the way so you can see me. Louis Anderson. And yeah, yeah. Well, not just Louis Anderson. Right. The thing right. I found out over time, but yeah. And then I, I did it and I was like, I, I asked her, I'm like, has anyone else seen anyone do that? And I'm like, no, no, I, like, no. The no one else was doing that in Toronto at the time. Like I was the only guy in Toronto doing that joke at that time. And, um, and then one day I'm, I'm watching the Louis Anderson special and that's how he opens up his special. I'm like, oh my God. I'm doing, I'm doing a Louis Anderson joke and it's a throwaway. Right. It, you know, it's, it's not even a joke, but at this point you're so new to your career that you're like, Oh my God, like it's a hack line. It is a stock. That joke is older than Louis Anderson. <laughs> that, that's how old, but like I, I see it and I'm like, Oh my God. And I call my friends and I'm like, like do I stop doing it? Like, what do I do? Right. And, and, um, Pat Thornton was like, "You do something different with it. You do something that no one else is doing." And Pat gave me a tag one night when I did it on. He was in the audience, and I like, "I'm going to move this because uh, so you can see me better." And Pat Thornton goes, uh, "It's funny because he's tall." <laughs> <laughs> That's great. <laughs> Which got an extra life, and then that that became the tag, and that sort of like in my head was like, "This is this is like now I'm adding to this old bit." Now, right. I was like, you should use that because that makes it a different joke. It's not just the, you know, you, you have that, but then you have more and you're building on it. And then eventually I just stopped doing it because I saw so many people doing it. Like not even, not even just like fat. It wasn't just a hacky joke for fat guys. It was a hacky joke for everybody. I saw skinny guys doing it. Uh, I saw, you know, like every, like so many comics I saw with that thing. And now I, I, if, if I move the mic stand, Odds are I'm going to make that joke because it gets a free laugh. But you know, I'm if someone else starts doing it, I'm never going to accuse them of stealing it. You know, right? It's, yeah, it's it's like it's like when you do birthdays. You know, when you're emceeing ho- and doing birthdays, the comic, you know, do d- the the MC. Odds are they did not write that birthday joke. You know, they did not write that crowd work joke because it's crowd work. It's the whole point is you got to be faster than the audience. You got to be smarter than them. And I'll fully admit half the stuff I do on birthdays, I probably stole from David Acker. (laughs) You know, like if, if I'm doing a birthday and uh, you're like, well, you're a woman, I'm not allowed to ask you your age. So how how much do you weigh?" weigh? Yeah. Full on. I I saw David Acker do that, and then the next time I was emceeing, I had a birthday. I had a
0: woman. I didn't know what to say. I stole that line, and it worked. That one I've seen. I was going to say that. That's one that it's just almost like part of that universal you know, tickle trunk of, of things that we're all allowed to use. Cause I've seen other comics from the U S like on specials use that. And I, I'd be surprised. Maybe they did see Dave, but, but the whole like, Hey, where'd you learn to whisper in a helicopter? Like yeah. there's lines that just sort of come out. Hey, this guy's available for children's parties. Like who yeah. the fuck knows where you that know, this isn't from? TV.
1: We can hear we're you. Exactly. You know, yeah. It,
0: it's a, it's a, like birthdays and heckle
1: handles. And, and I've told comics, like you, if, if you're dealing with a heckler, say who's ever joke you can think of. Yeah. You just got to be funnier than the heckler. Yeah. You don't worry about stealing when you're dealing with a heckler yeah. or when you're dealing with the, the fucking birthdays at the beginning of the show. Yeah. You're not stealing. You're getting through it. Yeah. You're Surviving.
0: Yeah. And- you're not like going into a 12 minute fucking Doug Stanhope bit yeah, <laughs> to get yeah. through it. But no, if you got a no, line that, no, that if, if any comic
1: stands there and goes, you stole that heckle handle. They're not a real comic. Slap him yeah. in the fucking face <laughs> and tell him to get out of your way. Yeah. <laughs>
0: that's my heckle handle that's how i deal with hecklers that's fucking hysterical
1: it's fucking you're having a conversation with ron Vaudry. ron Vaudry wrote every joke that any of us ever tell and god bless ron i love him but shut up you didn't write him comedy
0: yeah. existed before you <laughs> what's that uh, was not nuts it's wayne and steve schuster right am i crazy was it Steve Schuster, the son who did the, the, the had the guitar? He used to do them. He passed away. From yeah, as well. yeah, I think it was. was Sh- Steve Schuster? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he he was the one. When she sits around the house. She really sits around the house, and then he'd laugh and go, huh, thank you, I wrote that." You know, like, <laughs> he had the great laugh off of just addressing the fact that he clearly did not write that. Right. <laughs> thank you, I wrote that. The big guitar up horizontal on his belly. <laughs> but uh, so, do you remember like your first paid gig? Like in terms of like you said you were years after when you got to it, so I guess uh, let's ask a better. Well, question. I remember, yeah,
1: I remember my first paid gig because it was only a couple of years in. Did a, a charity show out in Grand Bend with uh, my buddy Nick Bailey and uh, my buddy Paul Shook, and uh, Paul, it, it, in my opinion, is the funniest friend I met in stand up who quit stand up. You know, and I think every comedian has one, some guy that they yeah. that was doing it when they started out, and and then for whatever reason they left the business. Paul, he. He, uh, I mean, he, he'll still get up and do a set every now and again, but he, he, you know, did the responsible thing. He married his girlfriend, got a real job and raised a bunch of kids. And, uh, but uh, Paul was like, he was just, a, he was, he was in a group with Levi McDougal and Tim Polly, okay. uh, uh and I think the Imponderables and like they were, they were just doing stuff that no one else was doing uh, in, in the city at that time. And Paul would like, he bring out his guitar and play weird, funny songs. He had like crazy jokes that I still quote to this day. Like he, he was just like outside the box thinking like he, he had a joke. He I wish I had a middle name like Ruby or Sapphire. So I'd have something to talk about if I ever met actor Lou Diamond Phillips.
0: <laughs> just silly stuff just, like, like that. Just you like know, eh? crazy stuff.
1: You know, like, you know, he'd sing a song about his mom being a ninja. Ninja mum, ninja mum, kung fu, karate chop, woo, woo, woo. <laughs> he had a whole love song to Joseph Stalin. Like you're my very favorite to Allen. <laughs> like I, I, I still remember all these bits vividly. And then my buddy, Nick Bailey, he's marrying a, a ballerina in November, him and his brother own a bar in Toronto called chill ice house. And, uh, Nick had, uh, set up the, 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 the got us the gig. Um, was out in Grand Bend, Grand Bend, Grand Bend, and he's from Exeter nearby in Huron County, and so the three of us went out, and we actually went out a day early so we could catch a John Wing show in Sarnia, that uh, Larry Horowitz was uh, the opening act for, and Larry was our, our teacher at Humber, so we got to uh, hang out with uh, John Wing and Larry Horowitz in Sarnia, and then we went to Grand Bend, stayed at Nick's place, did this show, and I remember it was like, so not only was it probably my first road gig first paid gig uh it was a hundred dollar a plate charity or two hundred dollar a plate. Oh, charity wow, dinner, big deal and they were like squeaky clean we were like cool we can do this and uh, i mean none of us had any business maybe shook because paul had been in it an extra year over nick and i but we did not have any business being the paid entertainment at a two hundred dollar a plate charity dinner and uh i was doing i remember doing my routine and i'd, I'd reworked the the you know shell of an act that i had at the time uh to at least be clean and i remember doing it and, and anytime i was suggestive i got my biggest reaction you know anytime i dropped an entendre the crowd popped and i was like okay so maybe the or- organizers said work clean yeah but the crowd isn't that clean and, and i was like so i stopped my show and i was like i, I was told because this is such a fancy event that I should work clean. But but I'm getting the uh, the feeling from you guys that you want to hear a dirty joke. So do you guys want to hear a dirty joke? And and the crowd's like, yeah. The whole crowd was yeah. So I told a story about uh, my buddy's band asking me to come on stage and dance at their show wearing a clown wig and a mask like the, that old Much Music okay, yeah. commercial with the, the money shot. Yeah. So they wanted me in a thong and a clown wig, and I didn't own a thong, so I just took my underwear and hiked it up my ass crack as far as it would go. And I jump on stage, and I got a trench coat, and I whip the trench coat off, and I'm in a makeshift thong and a clown wig, and I'm doing a lot of unnecessary pelvic thrusting, and at some point, I feel like a real draft down in my crotch area. And I'm like, oh no, did my junk fall out? And, but I'm looking at the crowd and there's no reaction from the crowd. Cause I figure if a nut popped out, you know, someone in the audience would be like, holy fuck, I can see those balls, but they're just like rocking out and right into the show. So I'm like, cool. I'm like I'm dropping down. I'm humping the stage. I finish off by leaping into the audience. I grab my trench coat. I bundle back up and I like go to the back where my friends are. I'm like, did anything, do you guys see anything? Cause it felt a little drafty up there. And they're like, no man, we were watching the whole show look good. And I was like, cool. And after the show, I'm hanging out with the, the band and I'm congratulating them on a good show. And some guy comes out of the crowd and goes, sweet show tonight, guys, you really rocked, but I totally wasn't expecting to see this guy's balls. Have a good one. Three different cameras were filming it and my nut popped out of the fly <laughs> of my shorts and was whipping around like a wind and No 100%. No, no idea. Just my ball was all over the place. And remember telling that story, grand Bend, and someone's grandma was laughing so hard. She was slapping the table with her head down. Yeah. That was like a lesson that just because they want clean doesn't mean they always want clean. Right.
0: (laughs) It's true. No, it's absolutely true. And that's why, I mean, even a good host will go out and, and, and sort of almost just try to fly a few flags for the other comics on the show and go, Watch what happens when I do dirty. Watch what happens when I do edgy. Watch what happens when I do dark. Watch what happens when I do clean. You know, just to to see, so people can go, oh, you know what? They they said to look, we're this, this this guy's doing clean. He's doing clean funny, and it's just dying a terrible death out there. You know what I mean? So it's it's good to be able to. Another part of our job that people don't think of is being able to actually read a room and go, to, I'm to, doing what I was to told. Gears. But yeah, yeah, exactly. But it is not working for
1: us. So and that that's the other thing is. is... <clears throat> To any young comics listening, you need more than one gear. Yeah. You need, you need to diversify your comedy portfolio. And, <laughs> and, and I, I always, to anyone who tells me that uh, they won't work clean, I take that as I can't work clean. Yeah. I'm not a good enough comic to not rely completely on filth. And if this is you and you're listening to it, yeah, I fucking said it. You can, you can bring <laughs> it up with me. <laughs> you, you're, if you say you won't, it means you can't. And if you can't, that means you're not the best comic you could be. Cause yeah. a, any comic I've seen
0: Jason Rouse work clean, so it can be done. Oh, absolutely. I've sat with comics while we're, while we're all spitballing ideas or whatever. And you'll hear someone bring up a good premise and you know, a couple people uh, contribute some ideas. And then one person's like, you know, oh, and then you could be like, oh, like, oh, but your dick is blah, blah. It's like, you could tell those comics where it's just, everything has to go back to the sex and you go, it's a crutch. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like we just came up with two ideas that are completely clean. I go, as soon as you put that, I go, you could do that. And it'll still be a funny joke. But now you've just taken it now, it's a dirty joke. It was it was totally clean up until you had to put, you know, dick or pussy or cum into it. One of my
1: best friends is I've never used a single tag he's ever given me, because it's always <laughs> Is it all yeah? It's always and then you fucker in the bushes. <laughs> <laughs> that face. <laughs> what the fuck are you talking about, <laughs> asshole? Like
0: I'm working corporate
1: this weekend.
0: Yeah. I, I, it's funny too. A, a good friend of mine, uh, Paul Verzee, opens for Bill Burr or whatever. Uh, Verzee, great comic. He has a strict policy of, he doesn't take any tags or anything from anybody ever. He's very strict. Like, if I didn't come up with it, I just never use it. And I was like, but, but it's okay. I'm like, you'll tell stories about what someone said. <laughs> you know I'm like i because i just think he's great and he's he's even told me he's told me tags that people have offered him for jokes i'm like that's fucking me he's like but i just can't i just would i would feel like i owe them like he's another sweetheart he's just i feel like i would i couldn't possibly say none then you know i'm making money from it and they're not getting a piece i'm like jesus christ i think it's okay it's a gift <laughs> yeah you know yeah so it's a, but it's like everything else right it's a fine line because going back to what we're talking about is yeah it's people are so eager to be like, you took that. That's not yours. I heard that. So at the end of the day, like it's just, just do your joke. You'll know if you'll know if you took it. And if you took it, don't, don't try to kid yourself. Don't spend the time writing the excuse as to why you're doing it. Just write a new joke. Take that effort. And instead of that, you know, I don't know. What do I know? So, um, in your career, um, do you, I mean, like I said, we've, we've talked about the milestones and everything like that. Do you have any like milestones, that that stand out did you like where you first felt like holy shit like i'm really obviously we get paid and that's a great thing but i mean in terms of like any huge milestones like holy shit like i'm actually uh oh yeah i mean there's tons of
1: milestones i think um going back uh well i mean like the first time i got paid to first first time i headlined or played a club outside of toronto okay was, was a big one, and uh, that was the. Uh, I went out to Montreal to do a, a co-headline with Rodney Ramsey at the Comedy Nest back when uh, Silver was still running yep. running it, and uh, so that to me was like a big, big milestone. Um, uh, my first festival, Winnipeg Comedy Festival, twenty eleven, uh, will, will always stand out. I'll always remember that one, and like I just louis ck opened a lot of doors for me yeah how did that so you opened for louis how did that happen well that was uh and it's odd because there's the I, I say louis opened more doors than winning homegrown did okay because it was in the same year and it was 2012 and uh um there's the homegrown competition they bring all the comps, and then i was 12 years in which gives you an idea of how strict they are to the best newcomer right it's like you no this is it's homegrown is like a breakout thing. If you've, you know, you're, you're at the point where you're, you're going to be a, a comedian no matter what. And this is the, the, this is a showcase. And I was in a great year. I was up against, you know, Amon, Sterling Scott, Eddie Della Seppi, Rebecca Kohler, uh, Ryan McMahon, uh, Kyle bottom. Uh, I'm probably forgetting some names, but terrific, terrific comics. And, uh, and I won that and it was great, but I had my, like, uh, as much as it was, you know, in Canada, it, it carries weight. Um, I, I remember like the same night that I won, Tim Steeves uh, was really excited to find out that I won. And at the Funny or Die party, grabbed Todd Berry and was like, Todd, have you met my boy, K-Trev? You won the Homegrown tonight. And Todd Berry went, oh, that's terrific. What's Homegrown? <laughs> and I was like, yep, okay. Uh, but then... Because of the homegrown, I got my own show at, at uh, JFL 42 that year. And it was the first JFL 42. And uh, so I was getting ready for that. I had I had probably like, I think I had six shows, you know, wow. uh, to do. And then Zoe called me about a week before um, the festival started. Uh, to anyone who doesn't know Zoe Rabnett, who uh, is one of the, the heads of Just for Laughs, okay. or at least one of the bookers. She's got an interview on my podcast. Go back and listen to it. Uh, so... <laughs> Zoe called me up, and I was—I remember because I was doing the the Hot Box Cafe in Kensington. I was doing the set, just working on what I was going to be doing on my show next week. And I stepped outside to answer the phone because it was because it was Zoe. Yeah. And I'm like, Zoe has people whose job it is to call me for her. So if Zoe's calling me, this is important. And I stepped outside, and I, uh, Zoe was like, uh, "You excited? We're about you know, festival starts on Friday. You excited to go?" And I'm like, oh yeah, I'm ready. She goes, um, I know you got a lot of shows to do, but do you mind doing a few more shows? And I'm like, pile it on. Let's do it. She goes, terrific, because uh, Louis C.K. has asked if you'd open for him for two of his shows. And I was like, don't fucking lie to me. Yeah. Because I'm going to tell people this. So yeah. if this is not true, let me know now. She goes, no. We sent him a bunch of tapes of comics, and he saw yours and sent an email back that said, could I have K. Trevor Wilson for two shows? And uh, I was like, holy fuck. And then I got a call the next day, going, uh, Patton Oswald would like you to open for him because he. We told him you were opening for Louis, and uh, <laughs> that's great, dude. That's so great. And so I, I got to do those two shows, and Patton, you know, uh, probably the nicest person in the world. Just okay. such a sweet man. Who, you know, when someone is genuinely happy for a stranger, that's Patton Oswald, Because I told him I'm opening for Louis, and he was like that's so great for you. That's so great. He's like, he's like the two best comedians in the world right now are Brian Regan and Louis CK. And you're opening for one of them. And that's terrific. And like, I just met him. Yeah. So like Patton's such a nice guy, uh, gave me, gave me a joke too. Cause he, uh, he, when I, after I introduced him, he said, I'd like to thank the cast of game of thrones for opening for me. Yeah. <laughs>
0: <laughs> That's awesome. I, I started
1: doing a joke about how I look like what would happen if Game of Thrones and Duck Dynasty had a baby, um, but then yeah, so I was doing my own shows, and then I did the two shows with Louis, and uh, they'd sent him a tape of me doing the penis game in church bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, and my first night backstage with Louis, Todd Barry was the other opener, which was like really funny and cathartic because he was the guy. <laughs>
2: <who> <laughs> What's Homegrown what home was. <laughs>
1: And, uh, we're backstage before the show talking and, uh, Todd's like, so what are we doing? He's like, he's going to go up and do time and then we're going to go shotgun style. So you're going to go up first. You're going to bring up Todd and then Todd's going to bring up me. And, uh, and he goes, oh, do you still do that joke about, uh, church going to church with, uh, your, your mom? And I was like, yeah, I still do that. And he goes, okay, I really like that joke. So could you do it tonight? Cause I want to, I want to see you do it live. And I was like, yeah, oh, no, oh, yeah. Okay. I'll, 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 <laughs> I'll do the joke. And then he's like, okay, can you guys give me some time to to get ready? You know, just give me some privacy. And we were like, oh, yeah, cool. And we we had our own dressing room. So Todd and I went off to our dressing room. And then Todd was like, well, what's this bit that Louie's asking you to do? <laughs> Why is he asking you to do this bit? And I'm like, oh, it's, it's this joke about – it's my closer right now, and it's a joke I do about uh, going to church with my mom, and my brother and I are drunk, and we start playing the penis game in church. And he's like – Oh, that's the joke he was telling me about. Oh, it sounds like a really good joke. And it's your closer? That's not fair. You sh- I don't want to follow your closer. Do a different joke. Somebody <laughs> said? But was yeah, he, he fucking was with fucking, you, though? Yeah, I was, was talking very sure. I was born into an oddly religious family. And I use the term oddly religious. I was born a Christian scientist. Thank you. <laughs> uh, Not everyone is familiar with Christian science. A lot of people confuse it with Scientology. They're actually very different religions. Scientology is a religion that was started by science fiction author L. Ron Hubbard, and they practice under the belief that millions of years ago, aliens were dropped into volcanoes here on Earth, and now their spirits roam the planet, causing bad things. Uh, Christian science is... That's a weird thing to applaud for. I don't know if you were clapping because I remembered it all or... The first applause, my description of... Thank you, it was a lovely description of Scientology. Now, Christian science is much stupider. Uh, Christian science is a sect of Christianity started by a woman named Mary Baker Eddy, and they practice under the belief that uh, they don't need to go to the doctor or use medicine. They believe that they can cure illnesses through the healing power of prayer. So, needless to say, most of my family is dead. Uh, Doctors are very important. Please go see them. Those diplomas are hard to get. Now, my immediate family, we left Christian Science and we became United Christians because we chose life. And... My parents are still very involved with their church, and I spend every holiday with them. And every major holiday, my mom tries to force her adult children to go to midnight service with her. Now, growing up, we always hated midnight service, because anyone who's gone to church at night can tell you it's dull. Uh, And it's always on a Friday, and that's a good drinking night. growing up we always tried to get out of it, but a few years back my brother Carl and I realized this is something nice that we can do for our mom that doesn't cost us anything. (laughs) So we should just suck it up and go to church with her. So Carl and I started our own, well it was Easter, so it was our own Easter tradition which we called, hey, let's see how drunk we can get before 12. The answer, as it turns out, is very. Uh, you get very drunk when you apply yourself to a goal, so... The first, the first uh, Good Friday we did this, we got good and rye drunk. And then we all loaded into the family station wagon. Off we went to church. And I started joking around with Carl. Hey, wouldn't it be funny if we started up a round of the penis game in church? to which my mother said, what's the penis game? Because when mom gets mad, she sounds like Nick Nolte. Uh, And I said, well, mom, the penis game is when one of you says penis really quietly, and then the next person's got to say it a tiny bit louder. And you keep going back and forth till either one of you chickens out or one of you is screaming penis at the top of your lungs. She said, you are not playing the penis game in church. That's not happening. And I said, of course not, Mom. Why would we do that? That's ridiculous. Don't worry, we're just drunk. So... (laughs) So we get to church, and Mom likes to get to church early so she can get the seats up at the front. Uh because that's where the church hides the good religion, is in the front seats. You don't want to be in the back seats getting the leftover Jesus with those heathens. You got there early to get that fresh-squeezed Jesus right from the pastor's mouth. So we snagged the second row of pews, and Mom's thrilled, because that's a face full of Christ in row two. And... Service starts and we all rise and Carl and I are sharing a hymn book and there is an elderly gent in the pew in front of us and bless his heart his eyesight was not as strong as it used to be he's having a bit of trouble following along with the words as they were written in his hymn book he's an older gent so his hearing wasn't that sharp anymore he was having a bit of trouble following along with the melody that the choir was singing. So this gentleman made up for these handicaps by just singing super loud and whatever the fuck he wanted. He was, he was all over the gospel improv map that night. Just, ah, hallelujah. Amen. Ah, and my brother and I were killing ourselves laughing the whole time. But that church version of killing yourself laughing, which is where You grab your sides and shake as tears stream down your face while you fight to hold in every bit of noise because you're not allowed to laugh in church. Because God forbid the sound of pure joy should leave your lips in the house of God. This was keeping us very entertained right up until we got to the sermon. You'd think, Easter, maybe you could Cole's Notes the sermon a bit, eh? Speed things up a tick. You know, get people home. It's late. Everybody knows the story of Easter by now. We all know Jesus got nailed to a T. Um... It's a lowercase t. Uh... But the night before, he took his friends out to the Olive Garden. And he said, look, when the Romans come for me, I need you to hide these chocolate eggs. because resurrection is hungry work and I'm going to need a chocolate fix when I get back. And could one of you guys please feed my rabbit? This was the word of God. We had a Dutch minister at our church by the name of Jan. And a more aptly named minister I have never met. Because he dragged that sermon on. On. I was starting to get a little bored. I was still very drunk. So, in the middle of the sermon, I leaned over to my brother Carl. And I said to my brother Carl, I said, Carl got it. He chuckled a bit. And then Carl leaned over to me. Carl said to me, he said, Venus." Now, I was only kidding when I said penis. Now that Carl said penis. Well, now we have ourselves a game. Challenge accepted, little brother. It's on like Donkey Kong now. So I waited, I bided my time and I picked the perfect moment and I leaned over to my brother Carl and I said to my brother Carl, I said, Peen, and that's all I got out of my mouth, ladies and gentlemen, because my mother... he chopped me in the throat <laughs> cutting off the flow of oxygen <laughs> that goes to my face <laughs> and then she said to my brother and I in this voice she said And she won. Thank you very much, Kingston. You've been unbelievable. Thank you very much.
0: You told me that, and I thought that was so funny because, because that's a huge deal, man. Like, a when comics quote other comics, jokes, <coughs> that's a compliment. You know what I mean? That you can remember it enough, you enjoyed enough to remember it and share it. And the fact that Louis C.K. loved your joke so much that he's you know telling another comic todd barry's fucking amazing which also i guess for anyone listening to know that you could be todd barry and still intimidated you know by (laughs) someone else going in front of you with a great joke like you you never i don't think you ever get to a point where you're like oh i'm good put me anywhere i'm good like we're all we're all good comics but you can still be like fuck there's still people i still want to following. Oh, dude, it's it's unbelievable. There's there's guys just it's just amazing. I I swear I told you this earlier today. So for what it's worth, I I was I don't want to say dreading because I was super excited to to do today's show, but at the same time I was just for a lunchtime twenty minute spot is nothing, but just so nervous at the idea that I'm like fuck I really have to do a good job before you because i know even if you're having an off day it's going to be a night and day difference so i'm like (laughs) i just i just have to do well i'm like dress nicer than i do normally for a lunchtime show make sure you bring it so well
1: that was the thing when i when i opened for louis (coughs) because i brought i was uh allison dora was my roommate at the time so i was like hey al you want to you want to come meet louis ck because i can bring a guest to this thing and she was like fuck yeah and uh we're backstage before the show and they're you know, literally before the show starting, they're running over, you know, they're going to bring me out on the God mic. And I walk out and I turned to Alan, like, there's a pretty good chance that when they say my name, I'm going to puke in that bucket. (laughs) And, and, uh, and I, and I didn't care about the audience. Like I was at the Sony center in Toronto, probably 3000 seater. So definitely the biggest crowd I'd been in front of at this point, but I didn't care about the audience. I cared about the tall redheaded fucker who was backstage. And, um, and so I, I, I don't know if Louis heard me say that or if he was, if he's just a, a sweet guy, but right after I said, I probably am going to puke in that bucket, he came up and put his arm around me. And he goes, this is the biggest show you've done so far. And I'm like, I'll be honest with you. I, I, yeah, this is the largest crowd I've been in front of. And he's like, you don't even sweat it. He's like, these people paid a lot of money to have a good time. They are determined to have a fun time tonight. Yeah. So you can go out there and say hi to them 12 times. They're not even going to get mad. They're just going to think it's part of the show. <laughs> so don't worry. Don't, don't get stressed out. You go out there, plant your feet, you know, get your head about you, do your thing. It's yeah. going to go fine. And it was like, oh man, thanks. Thanks for talking me down from the ledge. <laughs> I actually don't care about them. I just hope <laughs> you like it. <laughs> and we walked out and did the show and it was great. And, uh, you know, I got, um, uh, got mentioned in, you know, a lot of articles about JFL 42 and, and, uh, I was given a lot of credit, uh, for, for generating some buzz, uh, on that. Yeah, I had two great sets with Louie, my, my own solo shows did really well. And, uh, but being able to put opened for Louis CK in my bio, when I sent it out, all of a sudden, cause I, I every year. For many years, I emailed every club in the country. Right, and you know, like, uh, at this point, I'd already started working for Jason. You know, McGlone um, had helped me get into Absolute. I saw you for the first time the year before you won Homegrown, so you were still yeah. new, new to me. And I, I you know, I, I, I still worked uh, for the Nest every once in a while. I, I, I hadn't been out west yet, except for the Winnipeg Festival.
0: Okay, um,
1: and I showcased for Rumors at the festival but i hadn't worked for them yet uh and like just for laughs was my second and comedy records we'd started doing our touring so i was working but uh after i opened for louis ck everybody got back to me yeah when whoever i sent an email to got back to me and uh and then you know some guys like mike harrison helped me get plugged into edmonton um, Matt wall, I met him at just for laughs and he invited me out to do uh laugh shop. Um, Brandy Shazam, who was, uh, booking for the mix of the time out in Vancouver. She, uh, she brought me out to do uh, a, a week and just, but it was like after, after homegrown, it was like the comics were happy for me. And, and it was like, I sort of proved that I, I uh, I was, I was, you know, I sort of proved I, I was at a certain point. But opening for Louis made the business people right look at me. It was one of those those credits that was like, oh fuck, okay. And and that really started. And then like after that, I just, you know, I was on the road nonstop. Pretty much after that, I was, uh, you know, like I I lost a bit of money doing the first run, as you always do. You mm-hmm. go when that first time you go out, you're, you're going to take a hit. And then you figure out how to be smarter about it and how to get more extra gigs and how to save money and make extra money. But it was like that, it was, uh, you know, that, that JFL 42 really opened up a lot of doors. And then, uh, and that was also my first Just for Laughs. And then, you know, the next year I, I came back again. And then the next year at the 42 was opening for Sarah, who I, I had just done her gala at, um, at Just for Laughs that year. And and uh, I think JFL told her when they were – because they have to pitch to the hosts of the gala, they have final say on all the acts. Really? Yeah. This is what the, the JFL told me, that when they're putting together the show with, uh, with the hosts, you know, sometimes they have people they want to use, and then they have people that they want to use, and then they sort of work together to come up with a, a, a list that's good for everybody. And they were pitching me uh, to Sarah, and they were like, well, last year – Patton and Louie requested him as their opener at JFL 42. And, and she was like, Oh, well, if Louie and Patton want him, I want him. So put him on my show. <laughs> so I did the gala with her. And then when she needed an opener in Toronto for JFL 42, I think Sasha Manoli, uh, it was like k Trev's in town and Sarah already knows him. So why don't we send k Trev? And, and they called up Sarah and like, would you, would k Trev be a suitable opener? And she's like, Oh yeah, I know him. Send him. That'd be great. And, then I did two shows with Sarah and that got me like even more press. Polly Prevenza saw me do that and invited oh, cool. me to do set list show. Um, yeah, I got like, uh, I think the Globe and Mail called me the best opening act of JFL 42. <laughs> uh, and Sarah was, I mean, disarmingly nice. Sarah is one of the most, uh, kind and gracious people I've ever had the good fortune of working with. You know, you, you walk in there nervous and, and Sarah, comes around the corner and sees you and gives you a great big hug. And is like, we're going to have a fun time tonight. And, and that's what it was. It was a great time. She, she was just like, yeah, just so disarmingly nice at all times. Yeah. And, uh, gave my brother her leftovers from fresh. Cause she was like, I'm, I got to get on a plane and I don't want this food to go to waste. And <laughs> gave my brother, like my brother said, I, he had
0: three meals out of Sarah's leftovers. <laughs> but like, you know, that in the, in this, in a very short period of time, which is great. In a very short period of time, you too have gone from being like the guy on this side to like, dude, you're you're K Trevor Wilson. Do you know what I mean? Like you, you're, and you are now that guy that, like I said, for myself, as much as you know, both of us were just guys doing middle spots <laughs> and hosting for Jason. In a short period of time, like your your accolades and you've earned them. That's the best part. It's not who you know or who your family members that you've earned them because you're a super funny guy. But now now you're that guy. That people are like, fuck, I get to, I gotta, it's K Trev's a week, I get to work. Like you have gotten pit. to that point. Before we started our fucking gig today, that guy came up to you. Hey, are are you can I get a picture? Like that was fucking awesome.
1: Yeah. No, I mean
0: it, it's so weird because I still feel the same, you know? Yeah, and that but that's <laughs> I but I think <laughs> I think that's why another reason why you're so likable is that it's it's you you're not one of those guys who gets like the slightest taste of, you know, success or even just validation. You're like, I'm better than i Like you've still been very approachable, very, very kind.
1: The world has wonderful ways of humbling you. Cause there's <laughs> like so many times where I forget I'm on a TV show and I forget that I've been doing comedy for, you know, going on, uh, it'll be 19 years, uh, next, next September. And, um, it, and so it's, it's, I go out and about my day and, and people are staring at me. And I'm like, what the fuck's your problem? Like, <laughs> they're like, we really love Letter Kenny. And I'm like, oh fuck, right. I have a TV show. You all know who? Like the first time I got recognized in the airport, I thought I was in trouble. Yeah, a woman came up to me. said, like, Are you K. Trevor Wilson? And I'm like, yeah. And She's like, we're such huge fans of Letter Kenny. I'm like, oh thank God, yeah. I have a TV show. <laughs> I thought
0: you found something in my bags that wasn't supposed to be there. I, <laughs> I have one story of a guy who kept staring at me in a Costco one time, and I am I do not have a TV show. <laughs> But he just kept every time we crossed paths, he would just stare at me, and I was like, I, you know, and I'm not an aggressive. But at, at finally at the lineup, right, at, right as I'm about to, open my mouth I go, dude, what is your fucking problem? He, Absolute comedy, dude, you're fucking hilarious. I was like, <laughs> I'm like probably the only person in that building who knew what I was, and I was about to tell him to go fuck himself, like, that. and not maybe not go fuck himself. Yeah, like no, like, uh, what
1: have I? What have I done? The time I was standing on the street, waiting across the street, and this guy's eyeballing me. I'm like, you got a fucking problem? He's like. I saw your set at Vapor Central last week, and it was really funny. And I'm like, "Fuck, I'm I'm now I'm the dick somehow." Yeah. And but uh, (laughs) so like, you feel like an asshole because you forget that you're famous, and so. But every time you prepare yourself for that, I'm famous. It was like, well, you know, I better be ready in case people come up to me and want to talk to me and take pictures, and then that's the day no one knows who you are. Yeah. You know, and you're just like, well, I'm an asshole for thinking that people were going to be bothering
0: me. Well, I, I used to train myself. Like, I had a, a like I, a good so, source of ethics when I was working. You know, corporate day jobs because I was the kind of guy I didn't bring my uniform to work with me. I wore it to work. I'm not changing. That's extra cargo. I wore my uniform to work, yeah. and I always used to, you know, hmm. take. I remember I, I was taking a bus home with friends one time, and and one of them started mouthing off to somebody on the bus, and I was like, dude, you're wearing your fucking Tela shirt right now. Can you just you? representing your company you know what i mean you want to mouth out to someone fine take your uniform off first because now you look like that people yeah. are going to go hey that fucking going to that fucking tell us guy that's how they're going to remember you that fucking tell us guy so i just i remembered early on when i started stand up that i'm like now because i am my brand i am my product did i just delete something oh we might not have a neutro now Oh, everything's good That's what I was you tap your phone. Sorry. Uh, yeah. I, I just remember thinking early on that I'm like, now that I'm doing comedy, now I, I am my brand now. I can't just go out and, oh, I'm not, I'm not me today. It's like people see you. So everywhere you go, you have to be polite and kind. And not that that's a stretch, but just to have that, oh, yeah. that, that whole like, dude, what the fuck are you looking at thing? Oh yeah. The me, you or like I, I'm at the point too, where I, I just, I'm, I don't just
1: represent my brand, but I represent a whole other brand yep. in, in, uh, in letter Kenny and uh anything i do can can screw it up for i mean i i just i just opened for roseanne back in april oh did you and uh congratulated her congratulated her on her success and then a month later (laughs) Uh, my agent's like thank god you opened for her last month you know (laughs) there's been some other names that have had
0: some things happen since but yeah buddy like that's it's it's uh it's an interesting thing like I said I mean do you, do you get it a lot? Do you get the recognition from the show a lot? Or? Oh
1: yeah 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 like my, my girl it's really funny because my girlfriend has a social diagnosed social anxiety disorder. okay uh, that's not the funny part but <laughs> we'll be out at restaurants and and tables are looking at us you know and and uh, my girlfriend would be she she just like that's the part about dating me that she hates is people just the staring. And she was like, if they know you, I want them to come over and say it. So at least I
0: know why they're fucking staring. Yeah. yeah. You know? <laughs> no, I get that. I get that. Well, it's like because you and I, even in the stories we just told, it's like, the why are you staring at me? Why are you staring at me? Yeah. So they're having the same. Why are you staring at him? Why the fuck are you staring at him? Like, okay. So going into that letter, Kenny, I saw a lot of the, uh, the, the YouTube videos, <coughs> the internet videos that made that, that show, you know, come to be. Mm-hmm. But of all the characters on the show, if I'm not mistaken, if I'm not mistaken, initially, you're the only one that wasn't in the videos, but was added to the to the show.
1: No, no, no. Um, a good chunk of the cast wasn't in the original videos. Really? The, okay. The, the original videos had uh, four members of the cast in it. So there was Jared and Nate, who are or Wayne and Daryl. Jared being the creator of the show, mm-hmm. uh, co-head writer, executive producer, creator, star he's the franchise uh okay. he's he's captain canada captain Letterkenny, <laughs> and then uh, nate dales who plays daryl uh um they were the original two because the first two were just the straight to camera Letterkenny problems uh so the the original skid uh from the produce stand bit he was a vancouver actor and uh uh they didn't they didn't flesh out that character okay the hockey players riley and jonesy those are the only other two guys from the original really uh, sketches the hockey players and actually they like there's, there's been whole stories of uh putting together a show in canada uh requires there's like so many little rules about how many people you can hire from different areas and because the show was filmed in ontario there was restrictions about how many actors they could bring from outside and a lot of the guys. Um, that were involved in the early development of it were all BC because that's where Jared was living when he was creating those shorts. And they, uh, they, the, both those guys, uh, uh, Dylan Playfair and Andrew Hur, who play Riley and Jonesy, had to audition to play the characters they created. Really? Yeah. So they, but they were amazing because they created the characters and, and, that's who they are in, in a sense. I mean, they're not, they are, it, it, those characters are parodies of their true selves. Right. You know,
0: as, Jared couldn't just say, I know, want those guys. That's their job. No,
1: no, no. He, like, uh, uh, him and Nate were sort of signed right away okay. as the package, but everybody else had to audition to, to get in there. And, uh, a good chunk of the guys like, a, Andrew and Dylan and, uh, uh, Tyler Johnson who plays, uh, Stuart, uh, the skid, um, along with, uh, Jamie Lapointe, who plays the Ginger, the okay. ostrich fucker, um, and Jared were all on the same beer league hockey. Oh, and Nathan were all on the same beer league hockey team in Vancouver. Uh, and they were all buddies before that. And, and Dan Petronevich, who plays McMurray, and, um, uh, Alexander DeGiordi, who played, uh, the second skit he he left after season two, I believe. Um they were uh Jared's cast members from his other show, 192. So a lot of the people that, that came in had a connection to uh Jared and actually um Lisa Codrington, who plays Gail, um Michelle Mylett, who plays Katie, and myself were the the three members of the main cast who uh, uh, had no history okay, with, with Jared before the show. We were the only ones who, who did not have, um, uh, a previous relationship with him. And so I, my first meeting was with him was my first day of work in Sudbury and Jared Kiso walked up to me and handed me a, a mixed CD and a bottle of Jameson and said, welcome to Letterkenny <laughs> And I said, you and I are going to get along just fine. <laughs> now, how did you hear about this role? Like, well, I mean, like, I was a fan of the shorts. Okay. Uh, uh Cal Post and I used to have a, a podcast, a video podcast, and we would play the, the, the sketches, uh, as we found them. So I, I was a fan and I, um, and it was like the old fashioned way. My, my agent sent me a breakdown, like, you got an audition next week. Uh, now the, the producers of the show, New Metric Media, I had met with them. Several times they, uh, Mark Montefiore and Patrick O'Sullivan had approached me previously at just for laughs. And we had already talked about me developing a TV series based on my stand-up, And I had already pitched them a couple ideas that they'd passed on, but they were, they were fans of mine and were looking for projects for us to work on. So they, uh, I think they sort of went to bat for me with, uh, Jacob Tierney and, and Jared Kiso Jacobs, the director and other co-head writer. He also plays uh, Glenn, the minister on our show. Okay. And, um, cause my role was created for Dan Petronevich who plays McMurray. He was the original squirrely Dan and, uh, he, they cast him like, uh, uh, they pushed for me and they liked me, but Jared was going to be loyal to his buddy and, and Dan had network approval. He was ready to go Okay, and be squirrely Dan. Uh, but he had, uh, some. He had some things uh, happening in his life at that time and he, uh, he got cast in Suicide Squad. And it was a choice of, you know, he, 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 he no longer could commit to the show in the way that they needed him to. And so Dan stepped into the role of McMurray and, and they brought me in to play Squirrely Dan. And, and you know, as the story goes, uh, changed the show forever. Cause the character would have been very different played by Petra Uh, and, and Mick, I don't know if McMurray would have been, you know, I don't know if I would have been McMurray or what the hell would have happened there. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but it was one of those, um, it was another one of those things where he was, he had the job and then couldn't do it. And then I got the job, you know, the years later, the, why, you the understudy can't, why you can't count on, uh, on acting. Um, so, uh, uh, so I got a uh, new metric went to bat for me. And then Jared and Jacob uh, liked what I had done, liked what I brought to the character, but still didn't know me, didn't know me that well. Didn't, you know, didn't know what my sensibilities were going to be. If our sense of humors were going to gel, you know, we didn't know what it was going to be. And and so the part that Dan originally had that, the, you know, squirrely Dan originally in the script got scaled back uh, a bit. And then I came in and we did the first table read. And after the first table read, Jared came up to me and went, I'm going to give you back all the stuff we took away from you. And my <laughs> part, my part got beefed up again. Cause it was like, after the first table read, Jared's like, I can work with this guy and we can have a lot of fun. And, uh, and, and we just took off running. And and I brought, uh, I brought to Squirrely Dan the malapropisms and the, the e- extra, you know, in the script, there was a little bit of that, but I, but that was for everybody. There was just hick speak. Yeah. But I was like, I wanted to do something that that uh, the other two guys weren't doing, to set myself uh, uh, apart from them. And I was like, okay, I'm going to be the full on mush mouth of the group. I'm going to be the guy who does not know how to speak English, even though it's his first language. Because <laughs> playing small towns as long as I have in Canada. Yeah, I that's know that the language like, I've that met they had that have, guy yeah. a million times. And, uh, and and so I brought that into the character and Jared came up to me pretty early on and was like, I'm really glad you're doing that because I really wanted you to do that, but I didn't know how to tell you to do that. So thank you for doing that. <laughs> and and you know, that like became sort of my hallmark, what I brought to the show. So every time they sent me the script, I would sit there and go through and figure out which words I I like mumble or whatever up, yeah you know which words I, and, and how i was going to pronounce them wrong and and then we'd sit there like sometimes I'd, I'd show up on on the day and sit down with jared and Nate. And it's like is it funnier if i mess up this word or is it funnier if i mess up this word like should i say uh should i add plurals here or should i pronounce intranasalis in tranasally? like which is funnier <laughs> and uh we have those debates like the weird debates you have uh when you're in a comedy show it's like is it funnier if we fart here or burp? Like, <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> Which bodily function is the most hysterical? At I remember
1: uh, Jared, uh, after the the second season, Jared came to me and was like, I don't want you to act out your farts anymore. Because I in the first two you seasons, every like time I fart, I do like the cheek sneak or I do the move. Yeah, I do a butt acting to signify that I'd farted. And he was like, I think it might be funnier if we just have the sound and your body doesn't change and and that's how we started playing farts after that is I just i just, I, I don't play the fart. we just let the fart happen, and Jared's like, Yeah, I like this so much better because we're just letting the fart happen, yeah, we're not, we're not overselling the fart
0: <laughs> right? These are conversations we have to have. Are we overselling the fart? That's hysterical. So I mean I, I know you do have to go soon, yeah. so I'll I'll do our, my best to to lead us down the, the the final stretch here. Um, another big thing that again, like I mentioned earlier, super excited for. Uh, you, you did Kimmel. Was it last year?
1: She's I even mean, It's starting to mesh together. I think. Yeah, it was last January. Yeah, yeah it was last January. Uh, yeah, because I, I was dating Marisa, so it was last January. Uh, how that, did, that was a ton of fun. It? That came about from roast battles. Right. Which which came about because uh, there's the Roast Battles that everyone saw, the televised one. There was actually another Roast Battles the year before Just for last, which was a dry run for the format. And it was the Jeff Ross International Roast Masters Tournament. And there was representatives from uh, Canada, England, United States, and Australia. And there was more Canadians in it that, uh, Mark Ford, Sean Cullen, Mike Ward, all were uh, were in that one. Um, and I, I did really well. I made it to uh, the semifinals, got beat by Matt Broussard. Okay. Uh, but they liked me so much that they brought me back for the finals to do like an exhibition match against Brad Williams. And um, uh, and then when they were doing the televised one, um, Jeff Ross and the Rose Battles guys went to bat for me. And they were like, because they, they wanted to have like one Canadian, one Australian, one Brit, and then all the rest American. And they were like, K-Trev is the Canadian we want. And and Comedy Central wanted a more famous Canadian. They wanted Tom Green or someone like that. And the other guys and were like, no, K-Trev made it to the semis last year. He knows the format. He's gonna kill this. He's the guy. And they brought me in and and you know, I, I had a good run, made it again, made it to the semifinals, lost to Mike Lawrence and Earl Scakel, but had a good run. And um one of the nights, uh, the night I I battled Tony Hinchcliffe the judges were uh jimmy kimmel and seth rogan oh very guest, cool special guest judges so it was really fun because I, I got to meet uh seth rogan backstage and for years i had been compared to seth because of my voice uh like i literally had people come into my show because they heard me and thought i was seth rogan and and we have mutual friends i've known jay Bearshell uh since uh before i went to Humber we did a pizza pops ad together when we were 19 and then i was also in art of the steel with jay and um so, and, and he's really good friends with Jacob Turney. So when I met Seth, I, and, but also one of Seth's good friends married a girl I grew up with in Etobicoke Jess oh, right. that I went to grade school with. So I was like, we have mutual friends. I'm like, uh, first off I'm in Canadian entertainment. So obviously I've worked with Jay and then he was explaining to the American guys, anyone who's ever worked in Canada has he's done worked something with, with Jay, Jay at some point. Yeah. Uh, because, but, um. No, but actually, my friend Jess Hogeveen married your buddy. And uh, he was like, oh, I just had dinner with him. So, <laughs> so you know, the small world thing. Uh, it was really fun to finally meet Seth after all the years of being told how much I sound like him. But then also Jimmy was, was the other judge. And I, I had a great meeting with Jimmy coming out of the I, – I had just taken a shit. Ha <laughs> as all good stories of success. And right. I was coming out of the stall. And at the moment I came out of the stall and was washing my hands, Jimmy was coming in with his cousin, Sal to use the urinal. And Jimmy started chatting me up and I'm having this full conversation with Jimmy Kimmel about the state of Canadian comedy, you know what the roads like, what I've been doing, you know uh, where I'm at in my career. And I'm like, I'm washing my hands. And, but now I'm like, I have no reason to be in this bathroom anymore except yeah. I'm having a conversation with Jimmy and he's got his dick in his hand. <laughs> I'm hoping no one notices how bad I just wrecked that stall. So I'm like in this very awkward conversation because I want to leave because it smells like my shit and he's holding his penis. And But Jimmy's just chatting away as if he's not, doesn't have his dick in his hand and it doesn't smell like shit in there. And, and I, I don't want to go because how, when am I going to have this opportunity to have this talk again? So we have this full conversation, uh, you know, part ways, uh, very nice. And then the next day I'm at, uh, you know, the, the Hyatt bar. And I remember my, my brother, I brought my brother with me to just for Laughs that year. And I was like really tired. But I'm like, you know what? We should do one once a round of the bar just to see who's there because it's always a good chance to schmooze and we might run into someone we haven't seen yet. And as I was doing my rounds, I was, I was, uh, chatting up. Uh, some of my Montreal friends or someone. And this guy comes up, introduces himself to me as a producer uh, on the Jimmy Kimmel show. And that when Jimmy had flown back to Los Angeles the night before he called everyone that was, or emailed everyone that was still at just for laughs. And was like track down K Trevor Wilson and Bogan. really
0: yeah, good for you. So I, I was already in talks. It wasn't just like, Hey, you thought you might want to straight up. He looked like he, he wanted, he, he to sent podcast. his people out to
1: find me. And I was already in talks to do Conan at that time but Kimmel was very big on my first late show B appearance being his show. Cause that was, it turned out that was the thing he was starting all last year. The only standups he booked had never done late night TV before. It was everyone. He was giving a first crack to everyone. And that was his mandate for the year was uh, a brand new comics. So it's ABC man. I spent, I spent the next few months working on a set, getting it vetted. We finally the the process that I went through with, I really, it was a great education on American TV and dealing with producers because in Canada, there's so much less pressure. Mm-hmm. There's there's less people employed by the show. There's less money at stake. There, there's a whole lot of don't give a fuck in Canadian TV. And in the United States, like everyone, every time I sent a tape, I would get notes back from five different people. And what I eventually figured out through trial and error is that I had to put... A note from everybody into that set. Okay, I had to incorporate each of their notes so that each of them could have that moment where they go, "That was me." I told them to
0: do that. What can I ask? What those notes are like? Like, the, dude, every everything from like how to get an agent and who do you even start to email for that kind of stuff just seems so it's off. but in terms of getting notes so you put your thing out you, your video I, I send them
1: a tape and then they'd send back you know like they, they like this but they didn't like this like maybe if i should try this or you know don't do this but do this and and it was really weird because I, I i initially i wanted to do a five minute bit because right. that's my style you right know, I'm, right, I'm, right. I'm, I'm a long form story guy so i sent them a pure five minute bit and they were like we don't like stories from our stand-ups if you're going to do a story you do it at the couch Right. Uh, from the stand-ups, we want bits. So there was like, okay, you brought me in because you like what I do, but now you want me to do something different from what it is that I do. And so the set I ended up putting together was jokes from small jokes from giant bits. Like I was I was cherry picking my own set to build a oh, five yeah.
0: I recognized parts set. of a joke and I would look at the person next to me. There's so much more to that joke. And and, <laughs> and that was the whole set, and it was literally just
1: this producer liked that line. So I keep it this producer like that line. So I kept it this producer like that line. So I kept it. And in the end I had five minutes made up of lines that producers had liked. And the, the guy who initially had approached me and just for laughs and who I'd been doing the most contact with. When I, when I went to do Kimmel, it was his last day because he had quit because he was like, I'm so sick of all of this bullshit and going through the process of putting your set together Really showed me that I wasn't happy here anymore. So this, I wanted to see this through, and I wanted to see your set, and then I'm I'm done after
0: this. (laughs) And you you had said too. I think I saw on Instagram or Twitter or something the the cast of Letter Kenny had sent you a a gift basket or something like that to your room afterwards. Yeah, yeah,
1: they sent me a lovely gift basket. Uh, Everyone was. I mean, Jimmy was so nice and uh, just like literally one of the nicest guys. Like so gracious. Came out before the show when I was backstage and and talked to me
0: and then invited me over to the couch. Like, Yeah, that would, dude, I thought that was so huge because you hear about that back in the day with Carson. I don't see comics sitting down on the couch unless you're Bill Burr. That's the first time they've ever shot a stand-up live on Kimmel was my oh, really? set.
1: Every other time they pre-record the stand-ups, put them in the can, and when they need filler, pull out a stand-up tape that they oh. already have. I was the first stand-up in the history of the Kimmel show to perform in front of the live studio audience Jesus. with jimmy right there watching and i was the first stand-up to be invited to the couch after my set that's fuck well and the first the first canadian like living working in canada stand-up to appear on on jimmy e. kimmel
0: nobody honestly nobody better have dude i like and I said, Mike so, Trump. so yeah, man, well, I was so happy. Honestly, in the last year, I've seen a lot of guys that I, uh, that, like I said, that I, I think are genuinely good dudes. I love seeing what's going on with you. I love watching what's going on with Nathan. I love what's watched, you know, going on it's with, the D- shit. with, yeah, man. <laughs> and, I, and even DJs having a, yeah, a fucking, DJ's you having know what I mean? Like, time. and I love, and, and the thing is, you know, coming up with you guys now, obviously you guys started before me, but just like I said, doing shows where, you know, one of us is hosting, one of us is featuring, like to see that growth. Do you know what I mean? Like, I I started in this business with guys who were already up here. It's been very cool for me in my, you know, short... I've been doing it for 10 years, but even still in that short period of time in stand-up is to see guys going from like middles to hosts to headliners. And then that you think that in and of itself when you're new, you're like a headliner, yeah, I've made it. To so watch you guys doing the, the the festivals and the 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 shows and everything like that. It's it like I said, it's really cool to to see the successes and whatnot. Now I do want to ask uh I guess it's sort of maybe a weird last question, but this is something I, uh, a lot of my listeners tend to relate to is just, I ask, is there any point along the way where you had your, you know, your moments of doubt where you're like, ah, you know, maybe. Oh, I probably almost quit twice. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah.
1: If, if you don't ever doubt yourself in, in entertainment, much less the comedy part of entertainment, you're insane. Like yeah. you are delusional. If you'd never have a doubt, uh, that this is the right path for you. I, I almost threw in the towel. Like at one point I was, I was I, I, I was expecting to get brought back to do a TV show uh, I was on. I had submitted for a festival and I had all these things that I, I was, I, I, I was like, this is my year. Like I'm going to get these things. And then one by one, they all didn't like just, wow they didn't happen. And I was like all those, all I was counting on all of these things. And I was like sitting in my shitty apartment, crestfallen, just like, I, I can't do this anymore. I can't. I can't keep telling myself that it's going to happen because nothing has happened yet. Mm. And I was like, I, I need a new path. Like this obviously is not what I'm supposed to do. So I was like, tomorrow I'll call my dad. I'll see about, you know, if he can help me get back into school. You know, uh, if he's willing to pay for university again or something like that, because maybe I'll go to school for broadcasting and get into radio, something. I'm just whatever this is, it's it's not working. And then I made that choice and uh I got a phone call from Ryan Denis asking me if I wanted to do a tour he was putting together called the Sex, Drugs and Comedy Tour. And I was like, Okay, yeah. I like, I'll 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 put it on hold for a little bit. You know, we'll we'll do this tour. See what this is, and then I'll go back to university. And then I got a, an email from Gary Rideout saying my sketch troupe had been accepted into the Toronto Sketch Comedy Festival uh, after someone uh, last minute dropout. And I was like, okay, so we'll do that festival and I'll do this tour and we'll see what happens after that. And then Billable Hours, which is the TV show I'd, I'd worked on the year before, called me up and they're like, this is going to be the final season, but we're bringing you in for three episodes. And I was like, okay, maybe I don't, maybe I shouldn't quit yet. Yeah. And, you know, never made that phone call to my dad because those three things that I'd lost came back. Right. Like, and it was like, right after I made that decision that I'm, I'm never going to do this again, I got like the universe was like, Oh yeah. fuck,
0: send them something. Yeah, yeah, Throw yeah. something. Do something. We can't have this one. Sorry. We ignored this pot for too long. Okay. Here's something. Here's and,
1: something. uh, and then, and that was like, cause really the sex, drugs and comedy tour started it for me because we pissed off enough people. Uh, yuck, Yucks hated the fact that we were doing this tour. Uh, other comics hated the fact that we were doing this tour uh, the, because they weren't on the tour. Mm. and, and, and the tour wasn't even that successful, but we pissed off enough people that they took notice and Breslin hired away half of the tour to, uh, to keep us from ever doing it again. And then whoever wasn't working with Yuck XJ started booking yep. and, and like Merhej and I took off on one side and Brian O'Gorman and Ryan Denis took off on the other side. And, uh, but that it was, that it was really sex, drugs and comedy that, uh, because we just suddenly people, we'd done something that made people go, well, if we don't stop these people, they're going to keep making money
0: without us. Yeah. Uh, and we can't have that. <laughs> yeah. Well, and it's it's cool to see guys like Trent McClellan uh, did an interview with him and Trent was just very big on, on like a lot of people see what Yux is doing and, and like, well, why won't Yucks give me work? And why won't Jason give me work? And he's like, those are just business models. You know, you're you're in a position where you can rent a theater yourself, and if you want to assume the risk, then you can also assume all the reward too. But mm-hmm. now it's now you have to work harder. Like you're, you know, it's on you at this point. Um, it's it's dude, it's it's great to, to see everything you do. I'll ask you this last one last thing: what's what's next for you? Do you have anything that's that's coming down the pipeline that maybe uh, you can share with us or anything um,
1: next you're looking forward to? Well, I'm actually I'm going to be going back to JFL this year and hosting Homegrown. Uh, but we're televising it this year. It's going to be on TV huh. and it's going to be, and it's not a contest anymore. It's just a showcase of, pardon me, up and coming Canadian talent. Uh, and I'll be, it's going to be called homegrown comedy with K Trevor Wilson. And, uh, I'm really excited to be doing that. Uh, and, uh, we're going back to, we have, well, we have the new season of letter Kenny comes out next week and then uh, in the beginning of July, we debut on Hulu in the United States. So we, we get our, uh, uh we're not paying any tariffs. We're just coming, uh, <laughs> Kenny's headed to the States and, uh, so and we go back to work in August and I, I feel like I can say this. I'm, I'm, uh, working on getting my
0: set vetted for a, a half hour Netflix. That's awesome. Dude, congratulations. Thanks, super, love. Bud. Super, super happy for you. Uh, I appreciate you taking the time to sit down with me. Uh, I hope everyone has enjoyed listening to uh, to the stories. And of course, maybe next time you're in town, come in and uh, share some more stories with us. Sounds good, bud. Thanks Thanks, for brother. Me. I appreciate it.